0: at a remarkable idea, an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon
1: thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality, for this is the story of the miracle sea in
0: the desert. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon.
2: Yeah, he had uh, the nerve to post he had the nerve to a comment on some of my on some of my posts on my damaging colleagues on that stage.
3: So you need Michael He says you need Michael Deacon if you're gonna have a Michael on. That is below Oh shit! That is hidden Michael Horn. Bu- hidden below the be- And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. Hello to you on YouTube. I look forward to once again, serve you those sounds of salvation. You can find the podcast version of this program by searching End of Days on all popular media platforms or go to michaeldeacon.com. For further assistance, here we are again, gentlemen, for another very special edition of the Michael Deacon Program. Joining us this evening is Dr. Michael Aquino, former Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino, with an extensive list of accolades. He is a graduate of the Industrial College of the Armed Forces National Defense University Defense Intelligence College U.S. Army Intelligence School. And the U.S. Army Space Institute. He is also the founder of the Temple of Set and author of various books like the book of coming forth by night, mind war, mind star and find far. Hello boys and girls. Welcome back yet again on this very, very special edition of the Michael Deacon program. Mike Hideous draws assignment tonight as he joins me to host tonight's show. Let's bring him in here. Let me unmute him. One second, boys. Mike, are you alive? Uh, I am, yes. Fantastic. I'm glad you're here. I'm thrilled to share the air with you yet again. These sessions are always priceless, my friend.
4: Nice to hear your voice, Michael. Always a pleasure. Is uh, Dr. Aquino on as well?
3: Yes, let's bring him in. And, Doctor, are you there? I am here, and
4: thank you for the re
1: invitation.
3: Oh, yes. How are you doing, Michael, by the way? I'm glad to hear your voice as well.
1: I'm doing very well, thank you.
3: Very good. I was just in France a few days ago. I got really cold. I saw some wood and started a fire. Next thing I know, it's on the news. Uh, Aside from that, I'm doing pretty well out here. What
4: is wrong with you?
3: (laughs) I know, I I started off on the wrong note, didn't I? (laughs) Kind of heavy there.
4: You're really
5: off the the
3: rocker today. I I know, I I am very awful tonight. (laughs) But aside from that, we've got a plethora of topics tonight, gentlemen. A new audience will be listening in. And as we begin, I just wanted to mention that it's always an honor to speak to both of you guys both Dr. Aquino and Mike Hideous. Thank you, Michael. Yes, no yes, doubt. And thank you. Yes, and Mr. Aquino, I wanted you to take us back down memory lane. For the newer souls out there, um, I'm curious, what was a young 18-year-old Michael Aquino like? Well, let's see. Um,
1: a young 18-year-old Aquino would have been back in the mid-1960s, 64, uh, 65, Um, I graduated from the University of California at at, uh, Santa Barbara with a bachelor's degree at uh, age 21 in 1968. So you can sort of pin that on the calendar. And at that point in time, uh, intellectually, philosophically, um, I would have called myself a sort of a casual existentialist without any strong feelings in terms of metaphysics or religion one way or the other. I had never been
6: interested
1: in uh, conventional religions, uh, feeling them to be mostly a fairy tale sort of thing, Uh, maybe good for uh, metaphor and for teaching purposes, but uh, in the same sort of vein as Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. But I, I certainly didn't have any uh, strong likes or dislikes at that point. As I said, I was just taking things as sort of a day at a time in the uh, atmosphere of the 1950s, uh, sort of an Eisenhower kid, you might say. And uh, the uh, directions began to change a little bit in 1968 when uh, I happened to bump into uh, Anton LeVay and the Church of Satan uh, somewhat accidentally because I had gone to see the premiere of the movie of Rosemary's Baby, and as I was coming out of the early show, there was quite a sensation while he and his entourage showed up in a uh, a black Cadillac hearse and swept dramatically into the theater to see the later show. (laughs) And, of course, I asked the manager, you know, uh, WTF was that,
6: so to Hmm. speak, and uh,
1: (laughs) he said in a sort of an awestruck voice, that was Anton LaVey, and those were members of the Church of Satan here in San Francisco. And I said to myself,
6: I mean, yeah, Church of Satan, the real one, right here in San
1: Francisco, wouldn't you know it? So (laughs) I I, uh, uh, didn't have anything to do with it for about the next year or so, because I was busy in the 82nd Airborne Division and then in the uh, Green Beret course back at uh, Fort Bragg. But when I came back to San Francisco a short time before I went off to uh, Southeast Asia, I had the opportunity to uh, visit a couple of lectures that were given by Anton, and he struck me as a very, um, very wise and a very introspective individual with a... Uh, Good sense of humor, but also a strong sense of social morality, and that might make you, you know, sort of take you take you aback for a moment and say, "What, Anton Lavey, a, a sense of morality?" But in the late 1960s, 68, 69, we were in a, living in a very amoral time. This was the time of the Vietnam protests and the civil rights issues and uh, a good deal of of conflict and argument in uh, normal societies about what constituted morality, and the conventional churches weren't showing anybody uh, anything very impressive at that time, nor did we seem to have much of a consensus on a social morality in the United States. Everybody was pontificating at each other's throats. and in, in other words, it was not too dissimilar from the way things are right now. Yeah. With, I was, with our politicians <laughs> all posturing and preening like a bunch of bantam roosters. And here was a person who said, the essence of responsibility is individualistic. You have to start by taking it for yourself. And you have to start by the situations that you live in personally and you have to behave in a way that brings you know, pride and, uh, and justice and honor upon yourself. And if you're going to be a bad boy or a bad girl, then okay, you can do that too as long as you take responsibility for that. But what you can't do is blame it on society or your parents or the devil made me do it right. you know, or something like and that. If you're going, if, yeah, If you're going to be um, bad – Go ahead and be bad, and then own up to it, and say, okay, I was bad. And then if you want to spank yourself, okay. (laughs) If not, you know, that's something you're going to have to deal with in the mirror every night. So that that element of honesty was what actually attracted me to Anton and the Church of Satan back in those days. Together, of course, with the notion that here was an opportunity to explore what I thought were the, the unanswered mysteries of human existence. This is what the whole interest in black magic, and uh, and uh, the, the, these great hidden secrets of the universe were all about. So those two factors were what convinced me that here was something I wanted to be a part of and join in explorations with. So Understood. that's what made me join.
3: Understood. And do you recall what your parents' first initial reaction when they realized that their baby boy was now a Satanist? <laughs>
1: sure. <laughs> My father uh, was a Roman Catholic, but a very casual one. He never tried to browbeat me into it. My mother, a very interesting individual, Uh, she was sort of a phenomenon in her own time. She had an IQ of 189, was written up in Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, went through homeschooling at a blistering rate of speed and graduated from Stanford University, uh, summa cum laude, uh, three years by age 17. And she was, as you may imagine, uh, also totally uninterested in conventional religious uh, pablum. Uh, When she decided that she'd marry my father, um, she looked around for an appropriately interesting social church to get married in, and settled on the Sweden, Swedenborgian Church in San Francisco, which was sort of a, an artistic gesture, part of the Arts and Crafts movement. Beautiful place. It's uh, uh, a little bit like the Grand Californian Hotel in uh, Disneyland, if you want to uh,
2: use that metaphor. So uh,
1: they married for the atmosphere in that church. And again, neither neither one of them. Um, was concerned about me and the Church of Satan. Uh, Mom said, that's interesting, let me know how it works out. Dad said, that's interesting, let me know how it works out.
4: And uh, that was it. They
1: they both met Anton, they liked him. They didn't think he was a
4: crackpot or a crank. Um, nope. And uh, I, I got to say, um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I got to go say I'm fascinated. Sure. I'm fascinated by the fact that your parents didn't have what I would expect to be the typical Roman Catholic Surprise! I mean, it's Indeed. completely blasphemous. You know? Yeah, but let me, let me
1: tell you about Roman Catholicism in Italy. Yes. See, my father was uh, his family immigrated from uh, Calabria in Italy, and uh, the Italians take their Catholicism kind of the way we in the United States take an old pair of Levi's that we've you know worn in. They don't get all uptight about it. It's a casual, friendly thing. If you see the Godfather movies, you'll get some idea. Or maybe I should say a Fellini film would be a little better. The, uh, the priest in the, uh, in the local town there in Cosenza was a really dashing Marcello Maestriani figure who had a really torrid affair with my grandmother while my grandfather was out here in Portland, Oregon, Uh-oh. getting the family ready to immigrate to uh, the United wow. States. And he remained a great friend of the family all through life. Uh, later on, he visited Dad in Santa Barbara, and we went out to dinner together. He was a very elegant uh, Italian uh, priest, elder gentleman. So
3: Very interesting. Uh, that's, that's
1: It's a casual, casual, friendly way. It's not all uptight like you see the, them in the exorcist or something.
3: Understood. And I, I was only asking because I've known uh, numerous atheists and Uh, Satanists who kept it under wraps for a while before ever even disclosing that sort of thing to their parents, especially those who, I guess you could say, they had one of those traditional upbringings with religion. My parents
1: uh sent me around to the usual round robin of um,
6: Sunday schools
1: to see if any of them would take, and I was bored, so they didn't press it. I uh, went to uh, a boy scout troop and got my eagle in it that met at a Presbyterian church in San Francisco and had a Jewish scoutmaster. My first wife uh, was a Mormon, and we got married in a Baptist church in uh, Sausalito.
3: Wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) I I don't remember hearing this part. Tell me about this Mormon.
1: Yes, well, Janet, my my former wife, my late former wife— was uh, we actually met each other when we were about uh, a year or two old because our parents had known each other in San ah, Francisco. Okay. So I used to punch her out, you know, when we were two or three years of age, and then I took another look at her as a teenager, and she looked a little different, and uh, uh, one thing led to another, and uh, I, so we got married.
6: Oh, my. And,
1: and she was about as a they, – her her family had moved to Utah, where her father was the publisher of the uh, local newspaper in Provo. Uh, And so she, of course, was exposed to the very strong Mormon culture of those days, but it never took with her either, so she shrugged it off again, kind of like I did the Easter Bunny.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. I I never knew that.
1: Yeah, she went on to become a
3: priestess of the Church of Satan,
4: and... uh,
1: uh, very well liked. Correct.
4: Your, your 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 former wife became a, yes. a wait. Is that what yes. you just said? Your 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 deceased wife. Yes. Mm-hmm. She became a member of the the House of Satan. Uh, the, 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 end, church, the the Church, church of Satan. Satan. Oh, I didn't know that either. I, I mean, I I knew of your uh, your current wife um, and her mm-hmm. her role. In, in in the Church of Saint, and then of course in the Temple of Set. But I did not know your first wife was also involved in it as well. Yeah, I didn't know oh, her. yes. Uh, Janet uh,
1: was a priestess in the church at the same time that I was first a priest and a, a master, and uh, we were running the Church's Grotto in Louisville, Kentucky. And at that time, Lilith was had started and founded the Church's Grotto in New York City. That's uh, uh we eventually all met in
3: 1972. Oh, okay, very interesting. And I, I was going to ask this question much later but since we are on this topic and I know we've rehashed this a couple times, but I'm not quite sure if if I even remember asking it this way, but one of the listeners, this is a woman by the way, she seems mm-hmm. to be very obsessed with Lilith and anytime so am I. Uh, well, of course. <laughs> But she's very interested in knowing how you've met your wife, Lilith, and she's also asking if she's okay.
1: Lilith is in absolutely wonderful shape. Uh, she and I first met in 1972, when at that time, as I said, I was the uh, uh, senior master of the church in the eastern United States, and the church was going to have its third uh, uh, regional conclave out there in New York City. And Lilith was putting it together as the um, grotto leader of the Lilith Grotto in that city, which was the main grotto there. So we met at that time and stayed in correspondence uh, and friendship uh, thereafter.
3: Very cool. Very nice. And yes, I'm glad to hear that everything's good with Lilith. I know I always ask you about her. Uh, because the people want to know. They are very again. Mostly women are the ones who always ask about her.
1: She's. I mean, Lilith is just quite frankly breathtaking. I mean, she's. Uh, she looks the same now as she did in nineteen at age twenty nine. She's so a lovely woman. Yeah,
3: she's a very lovely woman.
1: And she's very a lucky active. man, doctor. <laughs> she's uh,
4: very active
1: as in animal rescue and animal sanctuary uh, interest and activities worldwide. Uh, through her archaic element of the uh, Temple of Set, which is an animal activist uh, element of it, and uh, just uh, going like a house of fire.
3: Very nice. And, of course, going back to 1968, that's when you received your B.A. in political science. And we'll talk a little bit about politics a little bit later here, but I want to ask you, by 1968, you were ready to take on the world, correct?
1: Well, yes. I had um, uh, decided that I was going after a military career, and I actually had a a uh, nomination to West Point, and I also had a Department of the Army scholarship to any other university that I cared to. And after taking a look at West Point and deciding that it had two strikes against it, uh, it was very cold in the winter, and it didn't have any girls at that time. These were both pretty awful, you know. Right. So, I I opted for Southern California, beach, surf, uh, uh, lots of girls, and uh, uh, the pleasantness of the University of California at Santa Barbara. So I went through there. I graduated as uh, what's called a distinguished military graduate, which is a Department of the Army designation that puts you on the same level as a West Point uh, graduate with a regular Army commission, not a reserve one. In, uh, in armor branch, that was my original branch, um, but then I very quickly uh, decided that I wanted to emphasize psychological operations, which I had first begun to study uh, long distance from Fort Bragg while I was a still a cadet, because psychological operations, or PSYOP as we call it, has this very interesting attribute that it tries to win both battles and wars by persuasion, Yes, and manipulation of people rather than by putting bullets or bombs in them. And this struck me as a rather good idea. I don't like hurting people. I don't like blowing things up and causing misery. I would much rather convince people to come around to my way of thinking if I can. And therefore, that became my field of specialization in the Army for the next uh, 35 years.
3: Understood. And that must have been such a fun time for you back in 68, out here in California. It's very hard to leave uh, California for whatever reason, especially the Santa Barbara area. Beautiful there.
1: Well, the nerve center of psyop in the United States, uh, there actually, there were two of them at that time. For the military, it was Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center. Right. And uh, otherwise... The um, uh, peacetime proponency for black propaganda or black PSYOP was at that time the Central Intelligence Agency up in uh, Langley. And for white propaganda, uh, the pleasant stuff, it was what was then called the United States Information Agency in Washington, D.C., which has since been absorbed into the State Department. So I worked primarily out of Fort Bragg because I was obviously on the military side of things, and uh, occasionally with the Central Intelligence Agency and the USIA. The military has proponency for all three kinds of PSYOP, but in wartime, whereas the, those civilian agencies have it for peacetime.
2: So that was sort of how it got divided down the middle.
1: So when I went, for example, over to uh, Southeast Asia, the countries that I was in over there, Since we were at war, it was a sort of a dual hat thing where I worked both with the military side of things and the civilian side of things.
3: Yes, and what year exactly were you in Vietnam? 69. 69, right? Okay. Now that must have been a very interesting time as well. The last time we talked, we briefly talked about Operation Wandering Soul, which is amazing. Can you tell the newer listeners briefly about that, Doc? And Mike, I'm not quite sure if you ever remember hearing... Uh, Dr. Aquino describes some of that.
6: Oh, sure. Um,
3: well, um,
1: um, now your. Well, your listeners uh, can, uh, after the show is over, if they like, they can Google "Wandering Soul" S O U L, on the internet, and they can find a copy of the tape that they can listen to. But uh, psychological operations in Vietnam had a, and, and uh, Laos and Cambodia, for that matter, had a multifaceted way of of reaching people it was through printed media through face to face contacts uh, teams that would visit uh, the outlying areas and and uh, tribes and uh, also of course loudspeakers and audio media and radio and television so uh we developed this uh One broadcast tape uh, called Wandering Soul, or since we were Beatles fanatics, we occasionally just called it Rubber Soul in those days, which was uh, something that you would uh, play from a helicopter at night in the middle of a sheet lightning storm when the helicopter was so high up that you couldn't hear the rotor blades. But there would be something right out of a Boris Karloff movie with all these screams and screeches of dead souls of uh, soldiers who had been abandoned on the battlefield without proper uh, burial ceremonies, and now they were, uh, and now it was their fate to sort of go wandering through oblivion because of uh, the misfortunes of the war. And wouldn't it have been nicer if they had not died on the battlefield and instead had worked together to uh, reconcile with uh, South Vietnam, so to speak?
6: So that message got
1: sort of snuck in there towards the end. And uh, we would go up, as I said, at night with this thing, and it was pretty spooky, I have to say that. We worked it up in the laboratories of JUSPOW, the Joint U.S. Public Affairs Office in uh, Saigon, which was sort of the Joint um, State Department, uh, CIA agency, and military super headquarters down there and a lot of people didn't even know just how it existed but that was sort of the super brain headquarters down there you might say and we worked it up in the labs there and people were saying what the hell are you doing making all this (laughs) crazy noise and chains rattling and and people screaming and moaning and stuff like this and Vietnamese and I said just trust me you know so that was the result of wandering soul. and we would occasionally have people uh come away from their units or surrender on the battlefield. And when we were asking them later on, what made you decide to come over? Well, it wasn't any of that stupid allied propaganda, certainly, but I heard, I heard some of my old friends up there, you know, in the night and that was it, you know,
3: that's amazing. Yeah. That's very fast. <laughs> that's, that's so crazy. I mean, back in that's the,
1: that's yeah. the short version of the, the great rubber soul tape or wandering soul, if you look it up online.
3: I can't. I can't even imagine what would have ran through some Viet, uh, some soldier just crossing uh, about there, just hearing those recordings. That must have really uh, tripped them out.
1: Yeah, well, most of the recordings uh, that we played would be sort of straightforward messages from uh, President Q or Vice President Q or somebody like that, telling people to please put down your arms and come over and, and surrender and get a hot meal and R&R and, and, R and all that. But this, we had a few of these bizarre things, and that was one of the bizarre ones. You get a good idea of how that sort of thing works in the movie Apocalypse Now. Yes. When you notice that when uh, Colonel Kilgore's helicopters are attacking that Vietnam village, he decides he's going to uh, add a little scare flavor to it by playing The Ride of the Valkyries. And uh, you notice the impact that that has when, uh, in the movie, the helicopters are attacking, and this Wagnerian music is roaring in the background, and, and Birgit Nelson, who has this unbelievable voice, is... is Howling out the uh, you know the the areas of uh, Brunhilde, and it's just makes you shivers go up and down your spine. You
3: know? Yeah. Even if I heard that today, if I was in a battlefield and I heard uh, the adversary blaring some sort of uh, wild music or wild sounds, it w- it would be kind of intimidating.
6: Yeah.
1: Well, you know, Francis Ford Coppola had heard. Uh, he was a sort of an aficionado of Wagner, and he had heard, of course, Burtie Nelson do Brunhilde, and after that, he wouldn't have anything else. He was offered um, to use some other tracks, but I'm trying to remember, I think it was the Vienna Philharmonic or the Berlin Philharmonic that had the rights to the Virgin Nielsen version, and he hounded and hounded and hounded them until he got permission to use it.
2: He simply wouldn't have
1: anybody else than that woman, and she had one of these absolute killer voices. If you listen to um, you know, Wagner's ring and you hear the one with Bridget Nelson that's it you won't, you'll never listen to anyone else
3: amazing and one of my listeners wanted me to bring this up to you he had asked me if you ever got a pair of uh, Ho Chi Man racing slicks when you were a nom
1: <laughs> well I'm not sure if he means sandals. Yes, uh, sandals.
3: Correct. Yes, that's what he's referring <laughs> no, to. <laughs>
1: no, I, I, I never did.
3: Did you ever see anyone wearing those?
1: Uh, I never saw that. Well, I, you know, Hoshiman's sandals were pieces of automobile tire. Tire, correct. Know, they were sort of cut into a sandal shape, and then you'd put some leather straps on them or whatever to hold them in place. So a lot of the peasants would wear these things, but they, they weren't. They, they weren't what you'd call designer, you and <laughs> of course you went to Saigon and you and you looked for some some designer ones that they were trying to sucker, you know, Americans into buying. But I, I didn't. I never had any interest in them anyway.
3: Yes, I'm sure he was uh, joking about it, but you know,
4: oh
1: sure, I definitely
3: um, had to get that in there for him.
4: I, mm-hmm. if, if I may ask, um, it really has nothing to do with the the. Um, the conversation we're having, but okay. someone also has a question for Dr. Aquino, and it is, uh, they wanted to know, uh, of course my page is now stopped from moving, they wanted to know if the doctor had ever, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, ask him if he, uh, about his trip to Weewolfsburg, W E W E L S B U R G.
3: Yes, they're inquiring about your That's trip to Halesburg Germany. Castle in Germany, yes.
4: Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. Yeah. Someone asked you uh, if, if uh, you would uh, elaborate, uh, elaborate on that trip.
1: Sure. And that uh, took place in the early 1980s, I think 1982, I believe. And uh, the Weewolfsburg Castle in Westphalia. Um, has, of course, been around since the Middle Ages. It uh, was originally, I believe, the the um, residence of the, the bishops of Paderborn in that area. Paderborn, Westphalia, sort of a German state in the north-central area of, of Germany. And when uh, the Nazis took over uh, control of Germany in 1933, Heinrich Himmler, the uh, Reichsfuhrer of the SS uh, very much wanted to recreate the Teutonic Knights of uh, medieval Germany with the SS. And also of course, to bring it forward into modern culture as a sort of uh, a linear descendant of the, this older German tradition. So he um, and uh Several of his advisors, some people would call them a cult advisor, but I, I would tend to call them more antiquities advisors, uh, like Willigut uh, uh, and so on, um, looked around Germany for, which is of course littered with old castles, and they were looking for one that was in the right position and sort of had the right um, atmosphere, uh, locale to be a, a, a new sort of central point of the world, as they called it, Mittelpunkt der Welt. And they settled on the Vablesburg Castle, and Heinrich Himmler purchased it for, I think, the price of one mark, which is what you can get away with when you're the head of the SS. <laughs> and, uh, and between uh, 1933 and and the start of the war in particular, he did quite a lot of renovation on it, um, and uh, built it up into the sort of the ceremonial ground zero or headquarters, sort of the Vatican, you might say, of uh, the SS. Uh, The unpleasant side of that was, since he wanted a lot of free labor, he also uh, started a a medium-sized concentration camp next to it, Niederhagen, I think it was, and uh, several of the inmates of that died during the construction of uh, Wevelsberg. So it wasn't exactly a a pleasant undertaking in in the sense of Walt Disney building Sleeping Beauty's castle in Disneyland. But uh, the Vablesburg did get mostly completed by the beginning of the war, at which point it sort of got into the back seat because the war from 1939 on occupied Himmler's and the SS's time um, and thoughts at that point. But after the war, I would kept hearing that this castle had existed. I'd hear uh, in in books such as uh, Goodrich Clark's, you know, or other little books on Nazi occultism or Nazi lore, that there was this castle called the Wabelsburg. And I got more and more interested, and in I decided I'd try and look it up. So finally I was over there on an assignment at NATO headquarters, and had some extra time on my hands. So I went to Westphalia uh, and tracked it down in the town of wavelsburg um,
3: uh, Killing two birds with one stone.
1: Well, I suppose. Yes. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I went there. It was, it was pretty much deserted except as an occasional youth hostel at that time. And the Nazi uh, the chambers that Hitler had renovated in the North Tower... The Valhalla uh, below and the Grail Hall up top were still in their original uh, form. So I asked the caretaker if he would uh, show them to me, which he did. One of the nice things about being a doctor and a professor is that when you call yourself a professor-doctor in Germany, you get a lot of heel-clicking,
4: which you don't in the United States. <laughs> no. that, is, that is so cool. I, I want to bring back heel-clicking. <laughs>
3: yes. Most people won't even know <laughs> what that means.
4: <laughs> well if you're I know a, what it in means. the United it's States, A awesome. U, you know, but they
1: still uh, they still hold you as a sort of a an incarnated divine spirit in places like Germany. Right. So anyway, Amazing. he gave me the uh guide tour and then I said, Um uh, uh would you mind if I spent some time by myself in the uh in the Valhalla, the underground room? And he said um uh,
6: you know, Zuba Fail, uh, Herr Professor, Doctor, here are the keys,
1: whenever you're through, just to bring them back.
2: Wow. So I spent the afternoon and evening
1: down there in the Valhalla and conducted the Babelsberg working, which I've described in my Temple of Set book at some detail, uh, in which I, you might say, reactivated the spirit of the castle, if you will. And uh, in a very satisfactory way, which led to the reformation of the Order of the Trapezoid yes. in the Temple of Set and, of course, all the many spin-offs from it since then.
6: So that was, the, wow.
1: that was some of the Weyelsberg yeah. working. I became very good friends with the uh, curators of the Weyelsberg Museum, and they would consult me occasionally thereafter when they were putting together um, books and things on the history of the Weyelsberg. And most recently, uh, one of my own books, uh, uh, We Break the Sword, is a historical novel, you might say, about uh, Germany during the period of the Third Reich in which the Wabelsberg plays a very prominent role. So if your listeners would like to sort of get a a, um, uh, a, a historical fictionalized tour of the castle nice. uh, conducted by Adolf Hitler and Heinrich Himmler, uh, that novel is a fun place to start. And i will also learn about a few of the other interesting aspects that Himmler and the SS were involved with, such as their expeditions to Atlantis and work with the infamous bell.
3: Oh, yes. Um, the Germans have—oh, go I, ahead, I have
4: Mike. to say, I, I'm, I'm amazed. Um, just Just hearing you talk about how you went into this castle— uh, performed your ritual and i, I have to ask though you what do you i mean there's so much to talk about when it comes to the second world war and the Nazi uh, regime but uh, my, my question to you is how how have you i mean it, it's interesting by far, but do you ever get any flack where people say well the there's a connection between black magic or Satanism and or Nazi uh, just the Nazis in itself. Uh, I, I've, I've watched um, – I've never read about it, but I've watched a few um, uh, documentaries about uh, the history of, of the uh, Nazis, and their – I can't say large portion, but a small portion of black magic. I, don't, I really don't know a lot about it, but do you ever get flack for that because of the association with the Nazis?
3: Um, by the way, great question. And um, there is another caller here on the line. I just wanted to make sure that they could hear us really quickly before mm-hmm. we take their question. Uh, caller, are, are you able to hear us right now? Caller,
0: hello. Caller, caller. There,
3: okay, can you caller? Can you hear okay.
0: can caller? Caller, you... can you can you hear the Can you hear the alpha waves? I'm I'm blanketing my call with with alpha waves. Listen closely just for a moment, please. I I need everyone. I need silence. I need silence even from Dr. Aquino. If uh, Dr. Aquino could even stop talking for a second. I'd like to blanket him with some alpha waves before I speak to him.
3: Good Lord. Well, I think you um, will get your, your
0: wish here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, now oh, that I just, felt uh, good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, um, hold, now, now I just need some uh, vapor. Uh, just, just let me get get a bit of vapor here. Vapor and, and alpha. Uh, hold on a second.
3: Yes, Mister Aquino. I'm not quite sure what's happening here, but it seems that we are being overrun by positive energy here, okay. which is always good. Okay. Okay, so outlaways, now...
1: Um, Alpha waves are always good, and they, they also bleed true to anybody else who's
0: listening. So your whole audience yeah. should be wagging its tail Yes,
3: now. that's very lovely.
0: <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, full <laughs> disclosure here, uh, Dr. Aquino and I are running a PSYOP right now on the entire <laughs> audience. Um, you, you're just not aware of it yet, but you will soon become more and more aware of it. I feel and, it. And, um, yes, and I... Uh, there's just one more thing I need go ahead. Um, here. I'm going to open this um, just quickly. I need a Mountain Dew.
3: Yes, Mountain Dew.
0: Okay, there we go. There you go. I've got a Mountain Dew. And, you know, I called a couple reasons uh, because I heard Black Magic and I heard castles, and so I decided to call in. No problem. Um, but uh, but speaking of Mountain Dew, this is a question for uh, Dr. Aquino, um, who uh, just let me mention this quickly. Uh, Dr. Aquino, I, I love you with all of my consciousness uh, forever and ever. Um, but a question about uh, do's uh, Dr. Aquino, have you ever been hit by directed energy weapons? You know, while you were sleeping, you know, in the middle of the night? Or have you ever hit anybody else in the middle of the night with directed energy weapons? Commonly referred to as do's
3: That's a great question. I've hit a few people at nighttime, but that's another story. <laughs>
0: Go ahead, Mr. Quill. Uh, no, the, the,
1: the shorter answer is no. I would like to back up just a little <laughs> bit and answer the question that was put a few moments ago, which was, uh, is there a connection between Satanism and the Nazis? Yes. And I would really have to say a flat no, because Satanism, no, no, because Satanism is at that, particularly at that time, would have been a very direct inversion of Christianity or Judeo-Christianity.
0: Inversion.
1: And yeah. the the Nazis went out of their way to not get in the way of Judaism. well they got in the way of Judaism, but they uh, they didn't get in the way of Christianity. In fact, one of Adolf Hitler's very first actions upon becoming chancellor was to work out a uh, a treaty called the Reich Concordat with the Vatican, in which they both agreed to stay out of each other's way. Uh, signed. Mm. Of course, by Ribbentrop on behalf of Germany and by Pope Pius XI on behalf of uh, the Vatican. And so that's why the Vatican remained uh, very silent uh, and uh, and very helpful, really, to the Nazis throughout the entire World War II period.
6: And one of the things
1: that Pius XII sort of got in trouble a little bit after the war for, but uh, there it was. It was the result of the mutual hands-off treaty between them. So there was no involvement in Satanism per se, and Hitler himself was what you might call a, uh, a symbolic materialist in that he was very much moved by, say, what we were talking about in terms of Wagnerian visions and musical uh, uh, visionary sensations, but he was not a student of old uh, Germanic occultisms in the pre pre-Christian era of runes and uh, and runic lore in the way that Heinrich Himmler was. So he would have considered
6: Himmler a bit
1: more of a fundamentalist in that regard, while Hitler would have considered himself more of a realist.
6: Hitler didn't really
1: have a collection of historic uh, or occult books, but Heinrich Himmler certainly did.
0: Oh yes. Yeah, um Dr. Aquino, uh, which card do you see Hitler? Is Hitler the magician? Is that his card?
1: You're talking about the tarot deck. Well, I don't know that I would 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 assign a tarot deck card to any of them. Um,
0: Well, what about this? Um, um, Hitler would have been uh, a practitioner of lesser black magic, certainly. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, he wouldn't have called it that, but he was uh, very definitely a practitioner of it, in the same sense that you might read those techniques that are discussed in Mind War, my book. Great book. He was very familiar with those and the state of those arts at that time, and he used them. And one of the most interesting sources you can read there um, is the second volume of Mein Kampf. The first volume is what most people are most familiar with. And uh, that has to do with um, his historical uh, experiences when he was growing up in the early years of struggle of the Nazi party. But volume two has more to do with his uh, ideas about the control of people in a political sense. And he actually tells a couple of uh, stories on himself, such as uh, he said when he went out to try to get some people excited at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday – in a beer hall meeting, and everybody just stared at him uh, in a stupor, and he realized that this meeting was going to be an abject failure. Uh, It was the wrong time of the day, the wrong audience in the wrong place, but he switched over to nighttime rallies with lots of torches and things, such as you see in Triumph of the Will and so on, and then everybody would get all fired up. So he became a great student of technique and style, There are films and photographs that are still extant that show the very great care that he put into all of his gestures during speeches. He choreographed himself in advance. At this point, you know, I will clutch my fists and pound my chest. At this point in the speech, I'll have one hand up in the salute Mm -hmm. and the other one, you know, grasping at air in a ferocious way. So he had all this
6: planned. It looks
1: so natural when you watch this guy giving a speech. It wasn't at all he he It was theater very, yeah. very, very carefully
0: crafted theater
3: yes, it's interesting. And, you and, say that go ahead what call did her.
0: he call it What did he call it if he did not call it lesser black magic?
1: I don't think that he gave it a a nickname. It was just the way okay. that he had learned to
6: deliver speeches,
1: and the person who he credited with having taught him this was Dietrich Eckhart. Uh, who was, of course, one of the major theatrical uh, forces in pre-Nazi Germany and also the founder of the Thule Gesellschaft, the Thule Society, uh, who was very much involved in the the theater in pre-Nazi Germany and had given Hitler a good deal of personal instruction on how to present himself in uh, speaking and, and personal appearance situations.
0: ultra aware of his um, environment,
1: oh very much so, and the yeah, yeah.
0: All created the environment. yes, when you see
1: yes. those when you see a movie like Triumph of the will, I mean it's a Cecil B d Mill production from one end to the other um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think my my favorite moment in Triumph of the Will is actually a sort of a joke that I think Lenny Riefenstahl struck in there as a as a sort of a private bit of fun because in a, in a piece of the film where these masses of stormtroopers are parading through the streets of Nuremberg, and there are these wildly cheering crowds, and they, you know, they're all leaning out of windows with swastika banners, and there's the, the music is blaring and everything, and then the camera cuts away to a cat that is sitting in a window, mm-hmm. licking its paws, that couldn't care less. <laughs> you know. And it's just such a wonderful breakaway moment, you know, that shows you the difference between people and cats, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. There's you think you've been a cat, uh, going on everywhere else, and the cats up there, eh, you know.
4: <laughs> if if, I, you may, if I may, if I may, Doctor, uh, the, the only reason, the only reason I had brought up that question about the affiliation with the Nazis and black magic and/or Satanism was simply because of. Uh, I mean, just the the sheer uh, controversial um, impact that the word Nazi or, or anything to do with the word Nazi has on people. Um, I've I, I got to be honest, I've never read up on the history of uh, the Nazis with black magic, but I do know that it did exist. Yes. Um, you know, they they used to, from what I understand, they used to have certain... Um, well, well, you know what? I better not even try to explain what I, what I remember, because I probably might...
1: Well, they had, had pagan Yuletide rituals that were brought forward from the Middle Ages, and, of course, a lot of torchlight ceremonies and oaths and things like this, particularly in the SS, which really got off on that kind of thing. But...
6: Uh, you have to admit this was, it. With this had nothing
1: to do with the Judeo-Christian Satan. It had everything to do with old Norse gods, such as Odin and Thor and Freya and, uh, and and those characters, but not really anything to do with Satan or Satanism per se. If you accused a Nazi of being a Satanist, he would have looked at you and said, well, where the hell do you
3: come from, you know? Yes, <laughs> very simply, true.
1: They considered Christianity generally as a sort of a decadent modern-day uh, variation on Judaism, so it was the last thing that they wanted to perpetuate more.
3: Yes, and hold on one second. Caller, did you have anything else to ask before we cut you loose here? Yes. Go ahead.
0: Um, let, let me uh, get my um, pre-show notes here. I uh, got they're some in notes. Room that, that, they're in another room that I okay. have blanketed there. with the different uh, alpha waves. You rehearse for this. Oh, no, no, this is all improv. Oh, okay, good. But he's I didn't blow my cover. I didn't. Blo- I didn't just blow my cover, did I?
3: That's no, okay. Well, you know, you're you're supposed to say no. I didn't rehearse. You know, that's what you're supposed oh, to no, say. Oh no, no, I did. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Even if you do okay, rehearse. Okay. So moving right
0: along. Go ahead. Moving right along to my next question here. <laughs> and, and guys, you know, I mean, how can Doctor Aquino uh, a- answer you know my questions if I can't ask my questions? Yeah. You know, I, I, I got to ask my questions. You know. I mean. Okay. So I'm gonna. And Doctor Aquino, you said um, you were talking about movies, Hollywood movies. And mm-hmm. I thought of a question: Hollywood movies. Okay. Um, do you ever have um, uh, slumber parties? You know, where like friends come <laughs> over and y- you watch movies, and you know, like, uh, uh, you know, order pizza, drink some Mountain Dew, and you know, have like a slumber <laughs> no, I, party. I don't,
3: I don't think so. It sounds like you're describing <laughs> Neverland Ranch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. I, I thought I would ask because uh, I, I have a lot of I had a lot to- of uh,
1: friends that I've talked to over the years about uh, Hollywood movies, of course, and uh, I was very uh, good friends with uh, Forrest Ackerman, Mister Science Fiction, and attended many a, yeah. a, a meeting, including the uh, uh, the salons that he used to have at his place up there in Hollywood Hills. So sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, well, maybe consider this, um, Doctor Quino. Um, I was thinking about that I would like to watch um, some classic episodes of the Twilight
3: Zone. With yes, you. the Twilight yeah, Zone. I, I think
0: that would be, I thought it would be, re- like, I was like, that'd be really cool. I would actually pay for that.
3: It'd be great and, to so have then I thought, well,
0: I'll and Then I thought, well, I'll pitch this. I'll pitch this to Michael tonight. You know, maybe we can make some quick cash. You know, hey, Twilight Zone with, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Dr. Michael Aquino. And so with that, uh, Dr. Aquino, you know, what's your favorite episode of the Twilight Zone? Or a couple, if you if you think of some mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, blocks
6: Well, I,
1: I I'm not really an aficionado of the Twilight Zone. You know, my old my old um my what old is your favorite job? at that my old favorite at that time was actually the original Outer Limits,
0: which was ah. yeah there you go <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're true. At least 40 to 50.
3: Yes. Love that. Uh-huh. I was
1: more of an Outer Limits kind of kid because they tended to have scarier episodes. But uh, Okay, what's your favorite I,
3: episode of
0: Outer Limits?
1: Of Outer Limits? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Gee, I, I, I mean, I, I, I like them all. I can't put my finger on a particular episode. But, um I'd have to go back and and review
0: them. Uh, yeah, them. yeah, no they, pressure. They I don't mean to put you on the spot. You know, if it comes to you at any point during this phone call, you know, if you think of a, a storyline or an element from, the outer limits. You know, just any idea. Like what, what, uh, how did you meet the outer limits? The show. Like what age were you? Did you have a television? You know. Like those kinds of things. Yeah, probably
1: as a high school kid in the uh, early 1960s in Santa Barbara, just watching it on black and white TV, like everybody else.
6: When I was a real little
1: kid uh, here here in San Francisco in grammar school, my parents would allow me to uh, go up uh, stairs to the room in the attic where we had our, our real old TV at that time that needed rabbit ears to catch sh- to catch
3: anything. Oh, old school. And at, yeah. <laughs>
1: at twelve thirty at night on Saturdays there there was a channel that would have old nineteen forties monster movies.
6: You know, oh the nuts. universal stuff. Very cool.
1: So yeah, yeah. to make sure that make sure that the monsters wouldn't get me while I was watching the shows, I would take the pillows from the back of the couch and build a fort at the front of the couch so that I could watch safely from within this fort. Um, and then I just had to make sure I could make
0: it down the stairs before the monsters got me after the show was over.
3: Amazing. By the way, is this Dan?
0: That is amazing. Uh, that call- is amazing.
3: Uh, Dan, is that you, Dan?
0: Uh, oh, this is a vapor. vapor oh, batch.
3: vapor. Okay, wrong, wrong guy here.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know Leppo and uh, Vapor Bat.
3: Wrong man, wrong uh, man. I'm, I'm sorry about that. You yeah, they like, on Twitter. You sounded just yeah, like my and friend. Yeah,
0: and Dr. Aquino, um, if I can, um, you, you know, I, I received an email, and I, asked, I so I thought maybe it was from you because and that's why I was thinking of like the slumber party and that. Um, and I had this email, and, it, and it's, the title is "Might be fun to meet soon." Might be fun to meet soon. Yeah, me. from uh, well, I, you, you listen. I mean, it might be you. I like maybe you just need a refresher here. Um, it was. I, I wouldn't title 3- anything 36- like that uh, in, in an email because
1: you never know where it's
0: going. <laughs> Amazing. Three fifty-six a.m. was when it was received. But, okay, so it's not you. It's not you. Okay, so anyway. Yes. Um, by thank the you way, so much for your time.
3: By the way, caller, so, I do have nice a, something. I do have a suggestion for you. By the way, for a good movie to watch. What's that bit of old school, 1971 classic THX one, one, three, eight, um, George Lucas. Yeah. George Lucas. Correct. It's always a favorite of mine. It really sums up a lot of what we go through in a very Mm -hmm. strange way for those that haven't watched it. Uh, Yes. THX 1138. Definitely a classic (laughs) to watch. If you haven't seen it already, go ahead. Caller.
0: Yes. Um, the Dr. Aquino, um, Can you help uh, everyone that's listening to this um, broadcast emanate from the internet? Can you help them? Uh, Can you show them the keys to the first three dimensions, the key to the fourth dimension, and then finally the key to the fifth dimension?
3: Amazing. Thanks for the
0: call. Thank you. Well,
1: um, I think what he's referring to is that the three books in my Mind series, yes. Book Mind War, Mind Star, and Fine Fire Star.
3: Yeah.
1: Each each of these actually addresses a different dimension of uh, existence and perception. Mind War is a book about the control of the first three dimensions of the objective universe, which uh, exists, of course, as objects and phenomena in uh, in objective space time, and uh, Mindstar, the second book, has to do with the human point of perspective or the human soul or the human consciousness, yeah. which is the fifth dimension. And interestingly enough, that's what um, your caller earlier described as the twilight zone, uh, because Rod Serling called it that too, the dimension of imagination. And he was very accurate about that because the fifth dimension in terms of it being the human perspective on the first four dimensions is what makes it the fifth dimension it 's sort of the point outside of things that allows you to see the things that are in the that are being looked at. The fourth dimension is that of time, and it 's one of the most misunderstood it 's also the subject of feinfar, that book, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the fourth dimension. Uh, no thanks to Albert Einstein, frankly. But the fourth dimension simply has to do with the change in location between any two points of reference in the objective universe. So if you have a tennis ball in front of you and you have one across the room and then you move one of them towards the other, you're changing the fourth dimensional relationship between the two of them by that. Each tennis ball has existence in the first three dimensions in the objective universe, and it it displaces a unique point or group of points in time space. And you create a fourth-dimensional relationship um, when you change their relationship to one another. And you, as the outsider who can perceive this change, are the point of the fifth dimension. So I hope that hasn't made it too obscure. But it's actually, these five dimensions are a very simple sequence of things. And when you hear people running on about, oh, higher dimensions and and wormholes and warps and things like this, you can pretty well toss this out with the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus.
3: <laughs> Amazing. And even,
1: even Einstein, if you look, Google Einstein's fudge factor. Einstein couldn't get his theories of relativity to work. So he introduced a fudge factor, which sort of jams them together to make them work. He doesn't publicize it, but it's there, and you'll find it if you look for Einstein fudge factor. And it pretty much puts the lie to what most people think of as Einsteinian relativity, because they've got it all wrong. The fourth dimension is nothing more complicated than the change of locations between any two objects. So if you're talking, for example, about the famous speed of light of 186,000 miles per second, uh, most people would say, oh, that's a constant. It's, it's the same everywhere, no matter whether you're on a tr- spaceship traveling fast or, or you're standing still on the Earth or whatever. My answer to that is no. It's 186,000 miles per second measured against wherever you happen to be taking the measurement from, and to that you have to add the velocity and change in location of where you're standing. So if you're on a spaceship that's traveling one mile an hour, and that's your only point of reference, then, of course, the speed of light will be a constant of 186,000 from it. But if you're standing on Earth behind the spaceship, and you're watching the spaceship proceed, and then it shines a light ahead of it, then you're looking at a higher velocity of light from Earth because of your point of perspective. And that's relativity. That's real relativity.
3: Yes, and Very I've, complicated. Yeah, very complicated. Are, are you still there?
5: Who, me? Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, we still have Mike here. I'm glad you're there, Mike. And we do have another caller here. Caller, go ahead. Hello, yes. What's up, my friend? Go ahead.
5: Um, I have a question for uh, Dr. Kino.
3: Let it rip, my friend.
5: All right, yeah. I was just wondering about... Because he wrote a book called The uh, Morgandale, or The More Lindelay, which is uh, a take on... Tolkien's uh I the no A. from the Silmarillion. I'm a big tolkien fan nerd um and I'm just wondering where he came up with a language for that and also for the language um that we find in the i think it's what is it the call to Cthulhu in the uh, satanic Bible um, so anyway okay, yeah, the, the, the 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 Tolkien themed book is the
1: Marlindale. Marlindale. And uh, that's M-O-R-L-I-N-D-A-L-E. And it's it's the Song of Darkness or Song of Night or Song of Illuminated Darkness, as its it's, uh, subtitle gives it. And it is currently in publication. You can find it on Amazon with the rest of my books. Because it needs to be a full-color book, it's on the expensive side at about 35 bucks, I think, US dollars. But that's because the color printing forces it to be at that high. Oh yes. Because the whole thing consists of reproductions of scrolls that are in English language, but are in a font that is very close to the uh, Elvish Tengwar, so that it's almost like you're reading Elvish. Uh, although the book, of course, is in the English language. And indeed, when Tolkien uh, used the Tengwar, his Elvish script, he would sometimes use it um, to construct English sentences, and sometimes he would construct a completely different uh, Elvish language, uh word or sentence like Namarië, which means farewell in Elvish. Yes. And he also had this surf, this which was a sort of a block-printing, um text that look kind of like the Old Norse runes. And you'll you'll see both the Surf and the Tingwar
2: in various Tolkien publications.
1: And um, you can look them up. You can also, uh, for your interest, you can find these fonts on the internet, download them, and actually construct um, language yourself in them, if you like to, by writing something in English and then changing the font over to the Tengwar, and then whoop, there it is. Uh, You'd have to do some refinements with all of the diacritical marks, but uh, it uh, is there. So I used uh, very careful studies of uh, both the Tengwar and the Seerth when I was researching the Marlondale, which is a retelling of the Silmarillion events and the Lord of the Rings events, through Malchor... Uh, and Sauron with a couple of other bit players along the way, such as the, uh, Witch King, Witch King. and uh, Palando the Blue Wizard. So that's the Marlindale. Um, I thought it was kind of an interesting event also because it was written in one, uh, one exercise that took me perhaps about two weeks of nonstop, uh, reading and research and writing at a time when I was wearing the one ring. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the story behind that is that about the time that Peter Jackson had finished his second movie, I thought it would be kind of interesting to collect a one ring. As you know, that at those times you could, there were millions of different kinds of rings available, uh, through Noble and so on. Uh, so I looked around with, through the Tolkien licensed people in England and their absolute, um, Top-of-the-line line uh, 24 karat gold one ring was uh, made by uh, a special Tolkien-licensed jeweler, jeweler and uh, sold by an outfit called Tolkien Town. So I had one custom-made and uh, received it here in San Francisco, and as soon as I put it on, I started to write the Morlandale. I kept it on, and I wrote the Marlindale for two weeks. I took that damn thing off. I haven't had it on since. And you can call me superstitious (laughs) if you like, but that's the story of the Marlondale.
3: Amazing. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Anything else, caller? before we cut you loose here?
5: Uh, Yeah, I I could talk to Dr. Queen all night. um, I agree. uh, I'll just... uh,
1: Oh, he was asking, I think, about the – he was also asking about the language, the Lovecraftian language. Oh, yes. Call of Cthulhu. Was used in the satanic rituals. I, um, When Anton LaVey was working up the satanic rituals in 1971, he said he wanted a Lovecraft section for it, and would I write him a Lovecraft essay and a Lovecraft ritual? So I said, sure. I was on the faculty of the U.S. Army Armor School at Fort Knox at that time, so in my time off, I, uh, you know, re-restudied my Lovecraft a bit, and then I worked up a complete language which I called Yagothic, uh, which I became almost as fluent in using as I could English, and then I wrote the ceremony for the Nine Angles in that,
2: and Anton got it. He liked it, but he said I was thinking
1: of something a little more uh, uh, nautical, a little more uh, aquatic. Uh, Cthulhu stuff, so I said, okay, no problem, since I had the language down pat, I did the call to Cthulhu kind of overnight, and sent that to him too, and he put them both in the book. That terrified the uh, Lovecraft community here in the United States, because they'd heard about all these things being fictional, and suddenly here was all these rituals in this complete Gothic language, and there was a, probably the principal magazine at that time was called Nyctalops, and the Nixlelops people were having hysterics about this, so I took pity on them, and I sent them an article in which I broke down how I'd constructed the entire Yugothic language, which they published in their next issue with a great sigh of relief.
4: Amazing. <laughs> if, if I may interject for a moment, uh, Doctor, um, you know, one of the first, not that this is any of any importance, but when I first got into magic, one of the first things I read through and through was the Necronomicon by Simon. Oh, yes. Um, and I got a lot of flack for that because many people were like, they they said, oh, well, you know, that's fake. Uh, there's no proof that that's real, so on and so forth. And the interesting thing is I, I I had a friend, maybe you might even know what I'm about to tell you, but there used to be a bookstore in New York City called The Magical Child. Had you ever heard sure. of it before?
1: Herman, Herman Slater's place that's out in Brooklyn, Brooklyn I think. That, yeah. That's
4: right. And from what I understood, I had a friend of mine uh, who I haven't talked to in years, but he used to work there. And it was told to me um, uh, through the grapevine that allegedly there was um, – uh, this whole thing was made up about the Necronomicon. And they they put this book out um, mm-hmm. just to sort of make money, and
6: uh, yeah. I, I can remember
4: – I can remember when I was a boy. I was literally – I was 13 years old, and I, I used to get Omni magazine sent to my home. And in sure. Omni magazine, they had an advertisement for the hardcover version of the Necronomicon. There were 666 copies printed. <laughs> and I begged, well, there I were a lot of my different
6: – the, the Necronomicon, Necronomicon of I, course, I, was I, a I I invention. my
4: mother. I begged my mother. I said, "Please lend me forty bucks. I got to buy this book." She said, "Get the hell out of here! This is this is a you don't need this trash." Now, years go by. Uh, oh my God! I was thirteen, so that was that was about almost forty years ago. And um, I was on when I, I was on Amazon on a couple. Well, oh, I guess about two thousand ten. And I looked up the very book, uh, you know, that hardcover book of the Necronomicon. $350 later, uh, wow. <laughs> uh, that, I ended up buying that book. <laughs> well, here's and, the um, thing. My, you know, the, the, the Simon Necronomicon, I
1: I was told some years later who the person was who'd actually written it up for a fast buck. But since I, I, I'm not sh- completely sure of it, I won't you know give his name here. But... It wasn't yeah. even what I would call a very good Necronomicon because it was all just this sort of paste, pasted over stuff from things like Arthur Waite's Book of Black Magic and Pacts and a lot of Judeo-Christian stuff, um, you know, from Eliphas Levi and this kind of thing. Right. And and okay. a Lovecraftian Necronomicon would have to be straight Cthulhu, Yog sothoth you yeah. know, Azathoth, Nyarlathotep, you know, and yeah. uh, and that crowd. Yes. And the best you well know, a lot of those pretend ones came out, I've in the Temple of Set reading list I've cited a few of them. I, I think one of the cutest ideas was by a friend of mine, Sprague de Camp, who I met through Forrest Ackerman. Sprague de Camp uh, was one of the Lovecraft Circle and he was sort of exasperated by all these fake Necronomicons, so he did one. That's and right. he took
2: he took <laughs> a copy of I think it
1: was the Quran and he assumed that most people can't read Arabic worth a damn, so he took about the first 15 pages of the Koran and then copied them over and over again into something book-size, and he published it uh, with wait a, f- wait a minute. Is, a fancy this, is this the Smoke in Fire book? When you see a hardcover book that's all in Arabic and... Uh, it says it's an Necronomicon, that's Sprague de Camp's fake one, which has got the, it's basically uh, copies of the Koran over and over again all through it. For about the first 15 pages, you'll start seeing them repeat themselves after a while. And he did it just so people – he did it actually for fun, so his friends would be able to have it on the bookshelf. And when somebody says, oh, you know, the Necronomicon doesn't exist, he could always pull it off the shelf and say, here, here it is, you know. I'm well, sure. the, the
4: whole the whole thing the whole thing with the the story uh, by Simon did, he put a few books out about the history yeah. of that original book, but allegedly the story is that there were uh, 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 these two monks that had been stealing from uh, churches, stealing manuscripts from churches, and they ended up mm-hmm. bringing this particular uh, uh, this unmarked manuscript that was allegedly 3000 years old they bring it to the magical child store and and then those two monks ended up getting arrested and charged with stealing all these manuscripts how far away that from, was,
1: how far, far away from the magical child is the brooklyn bridge
4: <laughs> <laughs> i'll give you a dollar <laughs> There you so, go well amazing well you know again it, it, the reason i bring this up is because as i have continued to study black magic i have also found that there are people who utilize the the spells and the incantations of the necronomicon into real magic they they have their own this. class of magic can, for necronomicon you can write like this you
1: can write these things for yourself if you study the in my in my current satanic bible for which I tend to get either uh, delightful five-star reviews or one-star hate reviews from, uh, you know, from the other side of the fence. Right. Um, I go into the whole subject and science of black magic and, in, and of course, concerning rituals. And one of the points I make about rituals is the same thing that both Lester Crowley and Anton LaVey emphasized, which is the use of barbarous names of evocation which means if you've got some good gobbledygook and you use it in a ceremony to get some atmosphere out of it, you'll get that atmosphere. That's what he used the Enochian keys for in his satanic Bible. He got them all wrong. I use them the correct way and explain them the correct way in this satanic Bible, but Anton simply made up a whole lot of misinformation about them, but he didn't care because he said, look, The people who are reading this thing and using it, they don't know jack shit, you know, about John Dee's Anakian system or keys. Anakian magic, yes. But they want something spooky, you know, to yell at this part of a ritual. And the Anakian keys, you know, you can kind of leaf through them and pick one that you like and use that. The example that I give, which is kind of even more fun uh, in a a way in the Satanic Bible, is that... um, There was a movie in 1931 called The Black Cat, starring uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi,
4: in, in which Boris Karloff,
1: among other things, portrays a satanic priest, and at the beginning of a black mass, he gets up in front of everybody and chants this really spooky Latin invocation. And it took me years to figure out what that was, because I was saying to myself, whoa, you know, what did Boris find? that was going to be such a terrific satanic invocation. Well, when you find the translation, which I also include in my satanic Bible, it's a collection of tourist phrases about Germany, about um, Latin, you know, like, where's the nearest toilet, and how is, this, is the sun out today, <laughs> and uh, you know which way, which way uh, to the street, and things like this, and he just repeats these phrases in Latin, one after another. But because of the way they're being used, it doesn't make any difference. See? Well that's the, and that's the is reason what, I this is brought this up. the whole point. Well you can is, use these that, things as what Alistair Crowley called a barbarous words of evocation, and Anton Levey, of course, said the same thing.
4: Well, if if I may, that that's the reason I brought this up, is because when I was when I was studying the, the satanic Bible, the Anton LeVay's Bible, mm-hmm.
6: uh the,
4: the master who taught me, um who who helped me understand black magic, um who is a very good friend of mine still by the name of uh, uh, Seth, and he um, he told me that, well, we talked about it, and I asked him, I said, well, why would the Enochian, uh, Enochian uh, uh, chance in the back be there? Well, I mean, that's angel magic. How is that associated with satanic magic? And he said to me, he said something what I, I, which I always found very interesting, which is this, it all really comes down to what you, you believe and what you use from your mental powers and your abilities to create things to happen and change the future with your own magic. So you could, it doesn't have to be the Satanic Bible. It doesn't have to be the Enochian books or, or anything like that. It, it could just be something that you create and you focus on in order exactly. to change. And as, as long
1: as you long know, know what, you know what you, the the important thing is that you know what you're doing and that you're not being
4: led down the garden
1: path and doing something silly for uh, an unknown reason. And that's why when, whenever Anton got to a, the word for God, you know, in the, in the ones that he used, for, that he took from um, Crowley's Equinox, he just switched the word Satan in there uh, in the translation. So, as I said, Anton wasn't worried about this. Uh, Once I asked him about it, and and he said, I'm using it as barbarous words of evocation, and if anybody complains about it, uh, he said, let me know. And nobody ever did, you know. Amazing. He said,
4: it's it's only some guy like you, Mike, who's smart enough to know this stuff, who's going to get pissy about it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll tell you, I owe a lot of it to to my my teacher who, who really explained things. But, well, since um, i just written a whole bunch of barbarous words, words for him you, in the in my gothic
1: rituals. I was not really in a position to talk here, you
3: know. Um hold on one second. Caller, uh, thanks for the call, by the way. I'm sorry to leave you hanging there.
5: Oh yeah, thank you. I appreciate just listening in. Just one more question to oh, so the appetite. Go ahead. Um Michael, I, I know you did a lot of work on the Ark of the Covenant. I read that book of the Ark of the Covenant in your search for it. Wondering if you could express uh what where you think it is. And if there is a historical King Arthur, thank you very much. All right. Thank you, buddy. Take care.
1: Thank right. you, Cole. Bye. He's talking about, was it Ark of the Covenant or Ark Cur- King Arthur? Or Ark, Ark I, of the, I missed that one.
3: Yes, Ark of the Covenant, he's asking.
1: Well, I wrote an Indiana Jones story called, um, I wrote two Indiana Jones stories. One was called Secret of the Lost Ark, which appears in my book, uh, Uh, basically my Star Wars novel called Fire Force. It's in the back of that. And then I wrote another Indiana Jones story called uh, Grail Mission, which is in the back of uh, 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 my book called Ghost Rides, which is sort of a semi-autobiography, you might say. But these two stories were inspired, of course, by my having seen, first of all, Raiders of the Lost Ark and wondering, well, how much of this Is there truth and how much of it is fiction? And the second one, Grail Mission, was after seeing the third Indiana Jones movie, uh, The Last Crusade, where I sort of began wondering about the um, Holy Grail in that same way. So I researched and wrote these stories, and I very unashamedly uh, did most of the research for Secret of the Lost Ark in the archives of the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C., and the State Department's uh, library over at the Foreign Service Institute, where I was working at that time, shortly after seeing the movie in 1981. So all of the scenes and sets and events and places and people and things that are in that first story all came from sources in DIA uh and are by all means, you know, not made up that way, and they had to do with the use of um, of uh, Hitler's stash of certain uh events and curios, not so much in the Babelsberg, which was Himmler's uh domain in the uh in the SS, but rather up at uh, the Eagle's Nest in uh which is Hitler's uh Tea House retreat way up above the Berghof, which was his uh, uh, main home there. So the uh, what you learn, of course, is that the uh, the fireplace up in the Tea House actually has a secret compartment and a swing away door, and that the uh, tablets uh, were concealed behind that from the original ark, but that the ark itself, minus the tablets, had made it over to the United States. Um, at the end of the war and were buried uh, not too far from San Francisco in warehouse number six of the Oakland Army Base, which was the only one of the major warehouses here at the Oakland Army Base that was a classified warehouse and therefore impossible to get into. As later relayed to me by Lieutenant Colonel um, Dennis Mann, who was given the job of supervising the place one summer, and that's what tale is then told in uh, uh, *Secret of the Lost Ark*, concerning the finding of the Ark of the Covenant there in Warehouse Six, but minus the tablets inside, which is what uh, leads the rest of the uh, uh, adventure in the story. In place,
6: you ultimately wind up in in Egypt
1: at uh, uh, the inside the Great Pyramid and uh, uh, including secret compartments and chambers that open up from the King's Chamber and go down to the subterranean lake and islands beneath the Giza Plateau there. And people who doubt the existence of these things, all I can say is, um, you know, do some research and some looking around, um, particularly in the Internet. You'll find plenty of videos and other sources that discuss the Giza Plateau and the huge warren of, of um, uh, rivers and, and uh, waterways that are underneath it, dating back from the time when that part of Egypt was much higher. And there are old water lines that used to go high up, about halfway up the side of the Great Pyramid, which gives you a rough idea of the difference of water levels in some of those uh, earlier ages, uh, as also testified to by the uh, erosion marks on the Sphinx that can't be explained by anything else than than water up to that level. So that was well, the storyline, very loosely, of the uh, Secret of the Lost Ark and uh, the actual history, such as it is, of uh, how a, a storyline like that might have come into existence in the first place. Grail Mission <laughs> does much the same thing with regard to the Grail, which was reportedly brought to England by Joseph of Arimathea and then wound up in the care of um, Sir Francis Drake, who brought it over to California on the Golden Hind and left mysterious keys concerning it in a brass plate that was discovered in uh, uh, on the shores of Moran County um, earlier this century. The brass plate subsequently... Uh, taken to the uh, Museum of the University of California, Berkeley, where it was deciphered, and uh, uh, later on also by um, photo x-ray to bring out parts of it that hadn't been visible before, thanks to Dr. Stephen Flowers, who suggested that.
2: Then tracing
1: this mysterious object down through the uh, the mission, the mission system in Old California.
2: And ultimately, to the
1: predecessor of um, the original mission that used to be uh, next to the city of Lompoc, which was uh, the one just above Santa Barbara. And that was the famous or the infamous Cursed Mission, which uh, had a number of very mysterious accidents and uh, mass deaths to the point where the Franciscans finally abandoned it completely and built an entirely new one, which is what you would visit today if you went there uh, uh, to visit the mission in that part of the uh, uh, in that part of the state. But the ruins and the relics of the original old cursed one are still there, and that's what the story focuses on. In addition to a couple of detours through Los Angeles to get involved in the Black Dahlia murder and. Uh, Hauntings and ghosts at uh, the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, that later on became the model for the Tower of Terror in Disneyland, and so on. So there's a lot of lot oh,
3: of wow.
4: a lot of good scary stuff there to keep you up at night.
3: Amazing, Mike. Did you were you saying something? I,
4: I wanted to bring up uh, years ago. I had saw I um, I'd seen a, a documentary on. I don't know if it was the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. I think it was History, but. They had they had this thing where they they made mention of the uh, I guess the Ark of the Covenant being um, not being what everybody thinks it may be this this golden uh, Ark uh, container but actually a uh, uh, um, I don't even know what you would call it but, but a, a woven basket of some type of materials. That ended up somewhere in Africa. Uh, I mean, I I don't know how accurate that is, but there was something I had seen years ago, and I I just thought I'd throw that in there. There's a legend
1: about the Ark being uh, in one of these old churches that I believe is in the Sudan, um, south of Egypt, and is sort of kept under guard there. and Nobody gets to see it, which is sort of convenient, but it's become a bit of a tourist Mecca. And uh, you, can you can sort of take that out or leave it, it if you like. I mean, you can go to the Sinai Peninsula and visit um, uh, Mount Sinai, and you will be there's a big tourist trap there where you can buy t shirts and mugs that that so, uh, and you can actually see the original burning bush if you want to believe that too. Oh, so this okay. is almost this is sort of the Middle East version of Area 51. You know, you can go and check this out and get the t shirts and stuff. In any case, the the Hebrews, of course, didn't build a, or the Egyptians, the, the, the whole idea of a traveling ark is an Egyptian artifact. You'll see them in the tomb of Tutankhamun, for example. And the original uh, version of a Hebrew one to contain the Twai or the two statues, which are what Dennis Mann uh, noticed as being important on this, the, the ark itself would have been a very crude construction if it was, uh, you know, even if it had beaten gold panels on it for purposes of insulation or ritualism, it certainly wouldn't have had the kind of workmanship you would see from the Egyptians had they done it uh, after the fact of the ones in Sudan Kamen's tomb.
5: Right.
3: Amazing stuff. And, of course, as we were talking earlier, before the phone calls and all of the things that just went down right now, um, we were talking about Vietnam, and just to wrap it up really quickly on the subject here, it's well known that you wrote the Diabolicon, and I was just curious: are the rumors true that part of it also saw combat?
6: Well, part of
1: it was blown up in combat. There we go. I think it was. Uh, um, uh, I can't. I'm off the top of my head. I have to look up whether it was the Book of Beelzebub or Belial. Uh, that, uh, I think it was, I think it was Beelzebub that was blown up in a, uh, hostile rocket attack that came in at, uh, uh, when I was stationed with the 1st Infantry Division for a while up at Lai like, hey, and going out to the various fire support bases. And I had the, these manuscript pages along with me. And in one night we got rocketed. And like everybody else, you know, you grab your weapon and your helmet and nothing else. And you just dive for the nearest sandbag hooch when that happens. So I left the Diabolican manuscript that I had with me with my clothes. It was all blown to bits, you know, by one of the uh, North Vietnamese or VC rockets that hit
3: shortly thereafter. So I had to reconstruct that
4: whole statement from scratch. Wow. Yeah.
3: That's very Uh, interesting.
4: If I may ask ask a question, too. uh, Concerning the new new version of the Satanic Bible that you've published— I want to ask you a question. It, there are uh, there's a, a couple of parts in the very beginning, and I can't remember which chapter it is, but you had written you had written a few things in a separate type of font that allowed the reader to read these words. And it, it, it to me, the first thing that came to mind was an actual version. Of a satanic Bible. Now let me be, let me let me explain what I'm saying. When you read the Holy Bible, when you read the Catholic Bible, uh, the Christian Bible, um, King James, uh, you you read stories, and that's exactly what you had done in a couple of on a couple of the pages in the early parts of the book of your book. And I found that so intriguing, and I I was wondering, have you ever thought of writing a book that sort of, it's sort of uh, like the Bible, like the Christian Bible, where it has stories about uh, Lucifer before he fell from heaven, and I mean, I I found that. That's what the the Diabolicon is,
1: or was, you know, it originally appeared, of course, without any any, uh, uh, side commentary at all. And, of course, in this Satanic Bible, there's a chapter that precedes it that explains how it came into being and how it was received and interpreted by Anton uh, when I first sent it to him. But the it was a standalone document, and the text, the typeface that you're referring to, uh, I believe it's called Swordsman or something, but I, I deliberately put the Diabolicon in that type to differentiate right. I remember it from we talked just the straightforward... The straightforward text that I wrote the rest of the Bible in, and I did it to emphasize that this was not a human being uh, that you were supposed to see speaking and I did the same thing with the anakin keys
2: in their in their word of set
1: translation to emphasize that this is different if you have the the if you had the color edition of the of this new satanic Bible, you would also see several color keys like this throughout it because The little dragons, you know, that are at the beginning of each chapter, uh, up at the top there, if it's a chapter that is by Satan or one of the demonic personages, such as Satan's forward, the dragon is all red. And if it's by a human being, such as myself, it's a green dragon. You won't see this in the black and white edition, unfortunately. There's no way to do it. But uh, that was just one of the little uh, uh, keys, you know, that I put in there.
4: Well, well, again, I understand what you're saying about how the the uh, the Diabolicon was was blown up when you were in, uh, you know, in in combat. My my question is, would you ever consider writing like a a more like a, a full book on just the story of of Sing- and, and his? you know, his time before when he was with God and all that. I, I just found that so fascinating, and it was very fun, because it almost gave me like a sense, like, you know, being a Satanist myself, I read that, and I was like, oh boy, finally, like a real satanic Bible, you know? <laughs> I, really got, I got well, a kick out of that's that. What the that's what the, the diabolical and,
1: was, and and, is, and was intended to be at the time, was a standalone document that was completely by these demonic authors— And it was used that way during the entire time of the Church of Satan. For example, when you go to the back of the book, as one of the appendices I've copied in there, the complete uh, ceremony by which we would ordain satanic priests. And you'll see in there that there are several quotations from the Diabolicon in that ceremony, which was the, I would say, the most solemn ceremony that we had in the Church at that time.
3: Yes, the writing is actually quite...
1: Yeah, so that's uh, so you know, that's all there and the I, I didn't write the Diabolican because I was trying to tell a story, you know, like I like I did say my Star Wars story. I wrote it because it was an inspired thing and it sort of told me itself where it wanted to start and stop. Yes. It was a little bit like what I mentioned before when we were talking about the Morlandale and I put the one ring on and suddenly I, I spent two weeks in a kind of a State of semi-hysteria writing the Marlin and then after that, I took the damn ring off, and I haven't been able to write anything like that since then. Yes, uh, about an Atulcan subject. That's yeah. that's those those peculiar, you know, works like that. That's it's all I can say, and I don't try to, I don't try to hokey this up.
3: Yeah, some, uh, sometimes these
1: share you my state of mind when I put them together. That they. Wrote themselves.
3: Absolutely.
1: With me kind of watching them write themselves, rather than me sitting out and saying, "I bet I can spin a good story here."
3: Yes, it's like you're outside of yourself writing these things. Uh, man is such. I a I become more of a spectator. Exactly. liar of them right. Mm-hmm. Man is such a complex yet simple creature in the cosmos. And by the way, we are joined by another caller here. Caller, you are live and well, correct?
0: Yes. Uh, good evening, gentlemen.
3: Go ahead. Good
0: evening. I have a question um for um, lieutenant yes
3: Colonel, ask, ask uh, dr. away ask Aquino. away go ahead go ahead
0: uh, dr. Aquino, are you uh, aware of this um, this thing called q anon the letter q anon no, i don't think so. Have you heard of this you know it, it's this letter q and it predicts what the trump um, you know, folks are going to do – Q presents himself as a, you know, a Trump insider, and um, he drops um, Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not aware of that at all. I know there was a yeah. – the, the only, the only
1: Q that comes to mind is that you know, way back in the, uh, my active duty days, the, the Q compartment was uh, a top-secrets compartment for uh, information oh, that had to do with nuclear stuff. That's all. If
6: you had a Q clearance it meant you were working on H bombs. Okay. And, and, it was the man, man, and of course
1: he was a character in the Star I Trek, Trek, Trek show too. I
0: think. Yeah, yeah. Well let me ask it this way, um, Dr. Aquino. Let let's suppose for a, a moment you were Q. Let's say you are Q and I asked you, would you tell me if you were? Uh, Unless I had some reason not to, but if,
1: if you're if you're asking me if I have some kind of a inside connection to the Trump administration, no, I don't. Um, sometimes <laughs> so I wish I did, you know, because I've got a lot of opinions.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I I'm, yeah. I'm not. No. Okay. Yeah. I'm not accusing you of being cute, you know, and I'm not um, you know, tr- tr- trying to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, I just want to. Uncomfortable, uh, but I, 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 you I'm know, not. So, so I don't have any. Uh, inside inside
1: tracks of any sort to the to the trump administration or his group actually they a yeah. lot of the stuff that he does kind of pisses me off i you know I, i'm i'm not um, i'm not a hard i'm I'm not one of these sort of knee jerk either right wingers or left wingers either way i I evaluate everything on its own merits but
2: well i'll give you i i'll give you a case in point you know a few days ago
1: uh trump said. Uh, okay we're gonna designate the Revolutionary Guard of Iran as a terrorist organization. And the and the Iranians got pissed off and they said, well, okay, if you're gonna do that, we're gonna designate the U.S. Army and military in the Mid East as a terrorist organization. And I was thinking to myself, you know, both of you guys have your heads up your ass because what you've just done is to remove the officially removed Geneva Convention protections and prisoner of war protections from both sides if they get captured by the other. That's fucking stupid, all right? things are bad enough over there already, you don't need to put this kind of a a tripwire for misbehavior on both sides in place on both sides.
2: So I would have
1: spanked both the Iranians and Donald Trump or Pompeo or whoever else had that idiotic idea, for removing Geneva protections from both our troops and the other guys. Amazing. <laughs> That's just an example of how of how my assessment and advice you know would go.
3: Yes. Well, thank you for the call uh, and question. And by the way, earlier at the beginning of the program, I made an awful joke about the church burning, and I was curious to get both of your opinions on the latest burning of that Catholic church out there it reminded me of the band the ba- uh, the black that metal band long? well no it reminded me of the black metal band called mayhem uh back in the earlier early years they were setting churches on fire but this time i don't think uh, a satanist or a black metal band had anything to do with it everyone is uh, pointing fingers trying to figure out who to blame some circles out there are i
4: think sa- they said michael i think they yes. said um that it was electrical. Yeah, some, still, they haven't been right. able to investigate yet, only because the fire department hasn't deemed it safe to go into yet. So once they can, they're going to do an mm-hmm. investigation. But they, they, as of right now, they currently believe it was an electrical
3: issue. Yeah, some saying it was arson, some saying it was an accident. Some uh, uh, people are saying that this was for insurance purposes. And, of course, some are blaming Islamic terrorists. And what it would wouldn't but it be there's funny? No, there's
4: no proof on any of well, that. They they've, they've done they haven't done any investigating yet.
3: Wouldn't it be funny if it turned out to be a couple of uh, kiss fans? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean in all seriousness, yes. you know, KISS wouldn't do that either. Yes, you know. of course not. Kiss wouldn't of course do that. not.
6: <laughs> no, they wouldn't.
3: <laughs> yes. And uh, And by the way, I'm just also very curious what both of you think, and I'm not sure if any of you out there, and Mike and Dr. Aquino here, I'm not sure if any of you guys had seen photographs of the church on fire in terms of this lady who snapped a photograph, and she claimed she sees the image of Christ.
1: Oh, come on.
3: Yes, there it's are one people of those. who see the Virgin
1: Mary in their in their, uh, their
3: refrigerator icebox
6: too.
4: So you know, yeah. hey, you, you whatever know floats
6: your boat, I guess. You know
4: something <laughs> about two years ago, about two years ago, I cut open a potato that I was going to cook, and I actually found a cross in the middle of the potato. So maybe I'm blessed. Maybe I'm <laughs> going straight to hell. Probably the latter.
3: Amazing. Ooh. You know, the mind sees what it wants to see. Many people believe they see things in clouds and rocks. On the side of a house, the mind. Yeah, the mind automatically anthropomorphizes uh, these things. That's how humans are hardwired. Um, I don't know how many times throughout history we've seen the image of Christ that miraculously appeared for X, Y, and Z. We get these sort of, um, yeah, we get these sort of uh, assumptions all the time. But really, it's just your mind playing tricks on you.
1: Well, let me tell you this, too, that it's, a, it's an old principle in PSYOP, you know, bringing back you know, my old profession here. Yes, sir. That you can tell people, and it even goes beyond PSYOP, it goes right back to stage magic.
6: People will see what they expect
1: to yep. see, and if you're a skilled stage magician, you will tell them and convince them what they expect to see. And that's what they will see. You know, watch my right hand here, basically, and uh, you know, don't pay attention to what the left hand is doing because the interesting stuff is with my right hand. Meanwhile, the trick is being operated by your left hand. And I go through this in in some detail in both the Satanic Bible, where I'm talking about lesser black magic,
6: and also in Mind
1: War, where I'm talking about magic uh, as a component of um, manipulation
2: and I'm talking very specifically about all these principles
1: that are very um, you know, very familiar to stage magicians. I'm a life magician member of the Magic Castle in Hollywood. So I've spent a lot of time with stage magicians and stage magic as much as I have with the ceremonial kind. And believe me, this stuff is, is absolutely breathtaking when it's done right, and you never notice that it's happening. I mean, when I first went I first visited the Magic Castle before I joined it and became a, a, first a student and then a, you know, a magician member.
6: I went there one evening, and I was talking to a magician in the lobby there. And at that time, Yuri Geller and his spoon bending
1: was a big deal. And he said, eh, it's nothing big deal about bending spoons. He says, have you got a quarter on you? So I reached in my pocket, and I pulled out a quarter, and he says, give it to me. And he takes this quarter, and he massages it in his hand out in front of me, and then he drops it back in my hand, and it's bent 90 degrees. Ah, son of a bitch. And then I said, <laughs> ah, you switched it on me. He said, I did not. I'll prove it to you. Give me your car keys. I said, I believe you. I believe you.
3: Amazing. Amazing
4: what do you what do you think about magic uh in and its association with very early day um uh shall i say black and or white magic? do you think that the magicians utilized stage magic of course to convince those? of course they wouldn't call it that i mean a good stage magician yeah. isn't going to tell you
1: that he's going to flummox you of course he's yeah. going to say, boy yes. am I going to get the spirits here right now and back in the old, of course Today, if you go to a place like the Magic Castle with professional magicians, then you know that you're being uh, pranked, you know. But back then, uh, if the good quark magician is pulling this stuff on you, it's going to be completely believable.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. yes. I agree. And by the way, since we are talking about this uh, again here, I did want to bring up Anton and how you basically departed – from that sort of philosophy to start your own thing because of how you saw the way things were being handled within the church of Satan. And right now I actually have a photograph of you and Anton and Sammy uh, Davis there. Sammy sure. there. Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. there. Yeah. You guys are looking very happy. And there's a young Michael yeah. Aquino uh, sharp as a tack right there with his hair slicked back. <laughs> Amazing stuff. <laughs> And by the way, we are joined by another caller uh, before we wind down here slowly. Caller, go ahead.
2: Hey, it's a great honor to uh, call in uh, and uh, talk to you, Dr. Uh, Kino. I just wanted uh, to—you've actually emailed before, but I've never actually been able to talk to you one-on-one. Here's my question. Uh, uh, There was a—what is your opinion on the the Satanic Temple and that crew of people— a documentary came out uh, on them, and it was very, very hot, quote unquote, at Sundance and making the rounds. And you know, who, who is like? I think the public is mis. I think they're sort of defining for the general public. They're redefining what a sat what a satanist is. I was wondering if you just had any comment on that and. No, I'm not familiar with the group
1: or the individual uh, that they use. I've vaguely heard the name Satanic Temple, but I haven't really tried to look into it at all. Um, My feeling is that I have explained the the philosophy and the metaphysical concepts of this in the Satanic Bible and also in my Church of Satan books, uh, the the large two-volume set, so I have tried to present the idea of the philosophy and the metaphysics in there for anybody uh, who wishes to pursue it and practice it to use as a point of reference. I don't mm-hmm. endorse any any Satanist church of any sort right now. Certainly the one that uses the Church of Satan's name is just a bunch of dress-up atheists and... Um, you know, if that's their if that's their thing, that's okay, that's their business. But I certainly don't have any interest in that kind of thing. My feeling is, if you're going to be an atheist, then you be an atheist. If you're going to be a Satanist, you be a Satanist, and don't try to uh, play games with the word just to get a little, you know, dress-up notoriety
3: for cocktail parties. Yeah, great point. But uh, yeah, otherwise, I I don't know about the Satanic Temple. I would have to
1: say that. When I approached the Church of Satan originally in San Francisco in 1969 and 68, you know, I was very careful because I didn't know whether this was a bunch of kooks or reputable people or what, and I simply went to one of Anton's lectures, and I pretty much made my judgment on my impression of him at the time, which was that he was an impressive, ethical person who I wanted to get to know better and ultimately decided to trust uh, completely, and that sort of plays into your earlier question here, because right. the I cannot tell you how much we trusted this man throughout the ten years of the church as being a person of absolute unshakable moral and ethical integrity, and the priesthood of satan he even he even used to you know rave about this himself, he said the priesthood of Satan cannot be anything but the
4: paragon
1: of um, of ethical and moral perfectitude you know much other other churches can have bums and and uh, con artists and stuff but we can't you know we've mm. got to set the standard here and that's the way we all felt about it that this church of satan was one step above being an eagle scout in terms of its commitment to you know morality and honesty and integrity and you did not get to be a satanic priest for example Unless you had gone through that individual working and ritual that's at the back of this satanic Bible that I just published here, and you Mm -hmm. meant every single word of it, and the church meant every single word of it when it gave you that license. So in 1975, when Anton suddenly turned around and said, I'm going to make all the titles of the Church of Satan available for purchase, I cannot tell you the shockwaves that that sent throughout the whole organization, including me. And that's why we left. We mm-hmm. were horrified, and you know, still are. I I document all this in my church of state and history books.
2: And I think it
1: was a combination of um, stress factors on Anton and Diane LeVay that made him take that step. Um, none of us were at all happy of it. We were just traumatized by the whole thing. So it was. And that's most especially myself. I considered the man like another father. I st- still do today. When I dedicated this satanic Bible, it's dedicated to Anton as my devil father because he called himself my devil father, and I called uh, and I called him. I called myself his devil son.
3: Yes, you had a very great mm-hmm. so respect. a godfather son, and
1: that was that's how we felt about each other. Yes. So it was a horrible, horrible state of affairs.
3: Yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. had a very great respect for Anton.
1: Yes. And uh, nobody could ever say a bad word about that man in my presence and still can't. When people uh, in latter days try to accuse me of um, attacking him in some way, I said, you find me one place in which i ever said a bad word about him, and nobody ever has.
3: Amazing. Right. Thank you for the call, caller, yeah. by the way. Thanks oh, Ron, I appreciate up, it, doctor. Uh,
4: Is he still there?
3: Yeah, he's still here. Everyone's here. I,
4: I I just wanted to let you know, Kohler. I, I know who you're talking about. Um, I've actually, I used to get, uh, I used to get uh, email newsletters from them, and I believe Mm -hmm. the organization that we're we're talking about here, they are, they're sort of. Beg your pardon?
2: Oh, they're they're atheists for sure.
4: Without a doubt. Um, Without a doubt. But what I'm trying to say is. They've taken Satanism to a, a level where they want it to be more acceptable. I've seen images of them conducting presentations on the—I think it was the, the steps of the of, of like City Hall out in Detroit, right? Um, right. And they they talk about how they want to uh, you know make it just more precedent in in in, in the public eye. But you know, I don't know. It's it's something like even me. Like I, I, I'm a Satanist. I'm a modern Satanist. I believe in. The religion to me is is taking full responsibility for yourself. I learned right. a lot from Doctor Aquino. I learned a, a lot from from Anton Lavey, and I I took both of the characters that I just mentioned, and I I interpreted what they were saying and and tried to understand what it was all about. And basically, it just comes down to being a good person and taking responsibility. However, I still don't tell my family about. It. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, my family's like you know, old school Italian, and um, right. it's just it, they wouldn't accept it. Well, that's so how I,
3: I, that's how for a lot of people out there are uh, when they are homosexuals and they have a religious upbringing, they're afraid to tell uh, their parents because sometimes the parents don't even know because they don't want to get sure. exiled from the family.
6: Let me tell
1: you yeah, something here: the, the word. When you talk about the satanic religion or the satanic initiatory path, the word Satan, of course, has a Judeo-Christian history to it. And when we use it in a context with that myth cycle, just as when we're talking about the Egyptian myth cycle, we will refer to Set. But what we're Seth, really right. talking about in terms of an individual, not just you being an ordinary human being who's taking responsibility for himself, but a person who is asserting a divine prerogative to seek out and define good and evil based upon your perceptions of these things and your assignment of these values. As soon as you begin to assert yourself the ability to make judgments about what is good and evil, what is moral and amoral, you are becoming a god. This is the this is the sin, you, if you call it that, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that they asserted the right to make these kinds of value judgments about good and evil. And that is the great sin, that instead of obeying somebody else's definitions of good and evil, that you take to yourself the responsibility to assign meaning. Just think of that phrase, assign meaning and assign value. Mm. When you do that, you are going beyond being a beast. You are going beyond being an animal. The dysfunctions by stimulus response you are becoming a god or a goddess, and that is what a satanic initiator or a magician is all about. So it's this aspect of becoming more than a human being to become a divine consciousness with that assignment of meaning prerogative. That's what this is ultimately all about. And the book that I just di- the book that I wrote called Mind Star goes into the into this in a really intense way concerning its discussion of the soul
3: yes the soul and by, and by the way i
1: would point right. you in that direction and say this is where we're going with this you know ultimately
6: right.
3: i still we need talk to about that.
1: Fanatism, I have... we're talking about a you know a catchphrase but it the real thing here goes much deeper than that and it has to do with your transformation from a, a beast into a god and that's what we're all getting at here
2: Right, you're talking about a, 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 like a, an evolution here. You know, thinking on your own two feet, reaching your own conclusions on your, you own, your, your own. That's what that's right. what got me interested in Anton Lavey. Not that he was a smarter con guy than some other guy,
1: but he, he had re, he had managed to hook his brain into something that was beyond ordinary humanity, and I, this was exciting as hell. And I said, I've got to learn more about this. I've got to study more about it this guy may be a high school dropout, but he's got his teeth into something here and I'm going to fucking find out about it.
6: Yes. And that's
1: where it got started. And I never looked back and I never begrudged one iota of the time that I spent drinking at the fountain that he provided that way.
3: Yes. And caller, is that it? You're good.
2: Uh, Yeah, that was great. And if you guys want to look that film up, it's called hail satan And I think you're going to hear about it a lot this year. Uh, Again, I just worry that it it ends up defining what Satanism is, and it's really a small group of people, you know? So I'm glad uh, we were able to talk about that.
3: Amazing. Thanks for the call, my friend.
2: Okay, take care, Dr. Aquino. Thank you.
3: And there he goes. Yes, you could take a lot of vital information from a lot of your work and this sort of ideology in terms of taking responsibility for one's action— which is something we see that's completely void in today's society. An individual actually taking responsibility for what he did wrong and having a conscious and the self-awareness to know that he did wrong.
1: I spent a lot of time in the in the Mindstar book in particular, but on the others also, and in the Satanic Bible, on the ancient Greek concept of telos, T-E-L-O-S. And also in the Egyptian, that's the root for the concept of kefir. And that has for the, for its, for its, what you're getting at here is a vision of your ultimate self, which is what you strive to actualize. That doesn't mean that you convince yourself that you're there all together. It's what Nietzsche referred to as horizon building. It's when you reach the limits of what you know and you are stretching out beyond it and you're saying there is a perfection. Of me that I can see that I can sense and I'm out for it and I'm going to you know chase after it until I find it. That's the real Holy Grail. You know when we're talking about grails, it's the Grail quest as we mention it in the Temple of Set that way. And that's um, you know that's the, the this whole concept in in, in uh, Greek philosophy of the telos, the the reason for being, the the uh, raison d'être. You know the the cause that you're here for, that that is beyond just simply being a processing machine for sex and biology and all that kind of thing. It's, there's a purpose to you that's beyond being a piece of meat. Oh yes, that purpose is the us, and that's what we're after here.
3: By the way, I still need to send you my copy of Mindstar, Doctor. Sure. I need to get you to sign that for me.
1: <laughs> I'd be happy to.
3: Yes, no problem. And, of course, as we wind down here, gentlemen, I did want to ask uh, you, Doctor, about the upcoming 2020 elections. We aren't, we aren't exactly that far away. It'll be here before we know it. But certainly, it is early in the game. Um, there are a few names here. And, Mike, I did ask you about your personal opinions about this. But we haven't really talked to the Doctor here about that. And I wanted to begin with that one name here, Joe Joe Biden. He's still pulling ahead. I'm not sure if he's going to run exactly, but it seems uh, all indications seem to be positive that he just might, in fact, do that. And, of course, all polls seem to be uh, positive that he seems to be ahead of everyone and following closely behind them is Bernie Sanders. No,
4: actually, you're wrong. I'm I'm wrong. What happened? I think think Biden is falling behind. He's falling behind now. Yeah, in fact, the only one who's ahead at right now in the Democratic uh, Democratic Party is Bernie Sanders, which is quite frightening. Um, in my personal opinion, I don't see how this idealistic um, new socialist idea could, I mean, possibly work. I, I think we've been very good with capitalism for the existence of this country, and I, I don't see how... I don't even see how he can even be involved in politics, being a socialist, in my personal opinion.
6: Well, my father
1: used to tell me, kid, there's only two ways you can get something for nothing. The first is you bolt a supercharger on your car engine.
6: And the second is,
1: the second is you jerk off.
3: Amazing.
4: Wow, that is quite so,
1: fascinating. So when Bernie Sanders when Bernie Sanders gets up there and says we're all gonna have free medical care and it isn't gonna cost anybody nothing that you can't afford, I say, Okay,
6: uh I don't think so. These
1: you know, these these people I don't know what they you know, there must be something in the water in something. Washington DC and I'm not drinking it, all right? Uh because these guys are wax. Yeah, a little crazy. And and Joe Biden is just dull. You know, I mean the best they can come up with when I was a kid, we had some really interesting people like John Kennedy, you know. He's exciting. You know, the, the, the women all liked him because he had this great haircut, and the men all liked him because he'd, he'd uh, gotten into bed with Marilyn Monroe. Right. So, so what the hell else do you want in a president? Hey. That's true. Um, You know, so, so I mean, but John Kennedy had a heroic thing about him, and you could really uh, get going, you know, with somebody like that. And, um and none of these people do you know the the all these democratic people are whack jobs so far. I keep waiting for them to come up with another John Kennedy or something, and nobody does they're either these two old uh half demented men you know Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, who are old white men of all things you know and uh and then these younger kooks uh, who seem completely divorced from reality and Donald Trump. If you had a John, if you had a John Kennedy up against him, you could beat him. If you have these whack jobs, none of them will beat him.
3: Yeah, I'm not quite sure if anyone will be able to rival Trump. And of course, we already mentioned. Not right now,
1: sure, sure as that. We mentioned. And and he and he shouldn't mm -hmm. be a hard person to beat. You know, he got beat in in 2016 because everybody thought that Hillary Clinton stank. (laughs) That's true. It was the it was an election of of who hates the other candidate more and yeah. got out the vote. I'm not going
3: to argue with that. And of course, Bernie Sanders he's still trucking along. And uh, you know he lost me a long time ago. But another one, uh, another issue that he made or said rather was that he would be giving that he would want to give felons the right to vote. I, th- I think that's kind of absurd. So I think he sort of that's ridiculous. Shot himself in the foot by saying that.
1: Well, that's, you know, again, it's a bro- one of these broad brush things that you've got all kinds of people behind bars, and, and a lot of them, you wouldn't want to trust them to date your daughter, much less vote. Uh, and there are others who may be perfectly lucid people, but you can't just paint the whole thing with a broad brush, and that's a bad brush to try and, and paint with. I don't know where he comes up with a crack idea like that. The same thing like, you know, when you say free medical care, the we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the... We don't have the teaching programs to create those kinds of doctors. We don't have the hospital networks to support that kind of thing. I mean, the, the logistics of it, if you're in the Army like I am, the first thing you think about is all the logistics of a situation. That's the, what we call the S4 problems. You know, that's the porta-potties and the food and the vaccinations and all that that you need and the transportation systems. You know, by the time you get around to worrying about the guy with a rifle, uh, there's about 10 times as many people behind him who all have to have their shit together. And these, so far, these presidential people are talking like they're from Mars.
3: Yeah, you're uh, right yeah. about that. I'm not going to disagree. Crazy. It's it's very weird to see some of these candidates and what they stand for. We also have Pete Buttigieg out there. Also, he seems to be the new breakout media darling for the Democrats. He is an open homosexual. and yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Many Christians out there have already taken issue with him they say he should be ashamed since he knows it's a sin to be an open homosexual and he's not doing anything to try to overcome his homosexuality my my attitude
1: towards homosexuality is summed up in in a phrase that
4: my my wife and i came up with and it is just don't scare the cats
3: that's a good one yeah don't scare the cats (laughs)
4: You know what? It just comes down to if your if your if your politics are good, if your ideas are good, who cares what color you are, what nationality you are, what what race or 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 gender? That's the problem with a lot of these people is they're so concerned about being so goddamn politically correct that they want to they want to shove uh, somebody that's different in, into the seat just because they're different. For example, uh, you know when when. Um, I forget who we were talking to, Michael, but we were talking to uh, mm-hmm. somebody who said they wanted to vote for what's her name,
3: Warren. Is oh, that her El- name? The- Elizabeth Warren.
4: Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought to myself, you know, well, why would we vote for her? Her ideas are terrible, and on top of that, like, it may, she made it sound as, oh, well, we sh- we need a woman in office. Okay. Show me a woman who's got the good ideas, and I'll vote for her. But don't tell me I've got to vote for a woman just because it's time that we put a woman in office.
3: Yes. That makes no sense. Well, we went through that drill with deal. Hillary. You know, right? And nobody right. wanted her.
4: And and, and you know, we're, here's the and the thing with Hillary. Where where is the investigation on Hillary? Talk about Russian <laughs> collusion. That's where Russian collusion took place, <laughs> and nobody gets a damn about doing any in in in. in uh, inspection on her
6: yeah it's true i know it's 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 a uh, it's a head shaker right now i think
1: as i see it right now i think you know unless the democrats were to come up with somebody with some brains and dignity which i don't see anywhere because they're they're just completely crazy right now uh trump is just going to get in on a default basis you know we know what this guy is like he may be he may have orange hair and he's a little strange
6: But at least we know, you know, what he's gonna do and what he's not gonna do,
1: and you know, he seems to be making more correct decisions than incorrect ones, which is more than we can say for any of the Democrats at this point.
3: Very true. It boils down to that kind of a thing. I you know, I think that a lot of people
1: mourn for days when we had some pretty distinguished people running for president of the United States, and you would say in a country this big, you should be able to find some really bright
3: people to do it, yeah, right, and that's, right. That was the whole argument. You know? Yeah, very true. And some, by the way, what you just said earlier in regards to JFK, uh, some people actually believe that was uh, one of the last presidents we, we had. That's real. Well, <laughs> he <laughs> was might, good. Might the case.
1: Um the And, and uh, you know, I may get in a lot of trouble for it, but Richard Nixon was good. He knew what he was doing. Um, Lyndon Johnson is... Kind of like having Al Capone for president, you know he was he was yep. sort of a a more washington d c savvy than uh, Donald Trump, but somewhat the same kind of a person you know he was a, a a crook, but you sort of didn't mind him being a crook because he kind of got things done. Yeah. Jimmy Carter was a boy scout. I like Jimmy Carter oh my I, God. I never heard a person who didn't like Jimmy Carter except that Jimmy Carter was too much of a boy scout for washington d c so everybody.
4: Took advantage of, of terrible, him. Terrible. Terrible.
3: Enhanced and, him,
4: you know, basically.
3: Mike, you think he's terrible?
4: Personally, I think Jimmy Carter was, was terrible. I mean, it also – I think the proof in that in that statement is when uh, we had the Iran crisis uh, and the American hostages were taken by the Iranians, they held on to the Americans for I believe it was a year. And then all of a sudden Ronald Reagan steps into the boots and they immediately let them go because they were scared shit of Ronald no, Reagan. No, don't, don't you know,
1: aren't, aren't you aware that Ronald Reagan's can't talk about collusion? Ronald Reagan had a deal going with the Iranians not to let them go until he took over. That was one of the, yeah, that was, there was the big scandals of the time. So they sat on those guys until Reagan was in the White House, and then he says, okay, you can let them go now, and they did. I mean that was that was. And,
4: and may I? <laughs> that
1: was dangerous. Where, where does
4: this come from, Doctor? Where does this come from?
1: Oh, it was well, all over the uh, intelligence community. I mean, it was a standing joke, you know, that this was going on. Carter, Carter was out of his damn depths in the White House, and he was too nice a guy, and he really didn't play nasty politics. And the people who were around Reagan, particularly Cheney, and. Um, Casey, you know, they were, uh, I mean, these these guys were just evil incarnate. I mean, I, I knew them and met them and stuff, and and you wouldn't turn your damn back on them. Um, Ronald Reagan was a nice guy. Uh, he I, I, You never heard him give a speech that didn't make you want to put, have him put his arm around your shoulder. But he was also a movie actor. I mean, that was his job, you know, right. projecting himself like that.
6: He wasn't dumb. He wasn't stupid.
1: I won't say that. He was pretty smart, you know, and he didn't allow himself to be jerked around. But he wasn't really calling the nasty shots behind the scenes. That was Casey and Cheney.
6: And of course, we saw Cheney
1: all over again, uh, you know, when it came time for this doofus bush, too.
3: Yeah, we did. And uh, switching gears slightly here, I had asked you about this in the past, uh, Michael. But with more recent discoveries of new Earth-like planets being detected by powerful telescopes, as time goes on, some habitual, some not. Uh, Michael, do you think man eventually will leave Earth to colonize another planet?
6: Well, if he
1: if he does, you know, you know, looking at these things within the limitations of foresight, you know, which can't go that far out because things can get you know, beyond us very fast in the future. Yes. But we could reach, you know, we could reach and colonize a planet like Mars if we wanted to. Um, It's, you know, it's semi-habitable, but it would need a lot of Earth support and things. But
6: you have to realize that as a biosystem,
1: you know, we are acculturated and acclimatized, you know, to Earth. And the minute that you get away from it, even to something like the moon or Mars or stuff, you're in a very, very artificial environment. We need an enormous amount of Earth support so that you couldn't just like go up there like you're in a Ray Bradbury novel and kind of cut yourself loose <laughs> from Earth yes. and, and pull it off. All right. We are Earth creatures. We've, we've built ourselves up you know, over the millennia as Earth creatures. Our entire DNA systems and biology and the whole business has grown up on this planet, and we're pretty much locked to it within the foreseeable future. I mean, if we blow this and we blow up the planet or burn it up or whatever because of a super nuclear war or something, um, escape to the stars ain't going to do it, guys. I went all through this in the 1970s when I was a charter member of what was then called the L5 Society. This began with Gerard K. O'Neill you know, and his space colony idea. And he was going to develop some orbital space colonies. Uh, He got people like Timothy Leary, you know, all excited about this. And they were going to have space colonies that were in orbit at the fifth Lagrange point, which is sort of the balancing point between Earth and the moon. And therefore, the L5 Society got its name. And they were going to use the space shuttle systems and stuff to start building these colonies and then
6: It all got priced out of existence,
1: and the the Pentagon moved in and pretty well took over access to the shuttle programs and so on, and that kind of fizzled. And the L-5 Society died out and became the the NASA, sort of a NASA rooting section, you know, as the U.S. Space Society or something, at which point I lost interest.
3: Understood. And in your bio, you are listed as having credentials in strategic and space intelligence.
1: I'm one of the Army's very first space intelligence officers. I went through the giant and space intelligence course at that time was conducted by the U.S. Air Force because the Army didn't have those facilities yet. I spent the next four or five years at headquarters U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs and Cheyenne Mountain where I was the J-2X officer officer. At uh, J2, which is the Joint Intelligence Office there, the X stands for the Unexplained Phenomenon aspect of it, which is the basis for the old famous X-Files.
2: Because all the stuff that Cheyenne Mountain
1: used to get on its uh, readouts and printouts that it couldn't make sense of, but it didn't want to just throw in the trash can, it would send them across my desk for me to look at.
3: Amazing. And are you open to the existence of extraterrestrials, Michael?
5: Well,
1: yes, I am. I'll, say it, I'll also say it this way, okay? I had yes. um,
2: my security
1: clearance as a space intel officer was uh, above top secret at the top secret special intelligence level, and I had two compartments. Compartment one was um, TK, which is uh, Talent Keyhole, which is basically the, uh, the satellite intelligence network up there that NORAD used to monitor from. And the other was MJ, which is uh, a sort of a different compartment from the MK series, which you're familiar with from MK Ultra and MK Naomi and stuff, right. more sinister. Well, the MJ had to do with contingency aspects of anything that might be extraterrestrial. So the whole notion of contingency planning that might have to do if we bumped into something that came down and... Uh, didn't seem to be from this planet, was, again, stuff that I had to pay attention to because it had the MJ compartments, you know, suffix on it. So TK and MJ uh, things were, well, I spent my time there at uh, Space Command working on for those uh, years from 1990 to 1994. Our office was at the headquarters U.S. Space Command, Colorado Springs, at Peterson Air Force Base, and we also owned Cheyenne Mountain, uh, right down the road from us, um, which, of course, is where NORAD hang out and uh, is sort of famous for the uh, setting for the Stargate series.
3: Oh, yes. And I have a question. Yeah, for Go you. ahead, Mike. I was just about to say if you had anything to add here, Mike, go ahead.
4: I have a question for you, doctor. Do you believe yeah. in... Illegal immigrants or aliens.
3: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that
4: came out wrong. It was supposed to be, do you believe in illegal aliens?
6: <laughs> <laughs> you mean
4: the
1: ones from here or the ones from up there? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That, course, that reminds but... me of those old cartoons that used to show some Indians and they were watching the Mayflower sailing up to the, you know, the shores of New England. And one of them saying, "Up oh, here comes another boatload of illegal aliens. <laughs>
3: That's incredible.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, I, you
4: know, if you're talking about the ones that we're having issues with on the borders here right now, this you, all has you to know, do I with was the just kidding If you want now. to answer it, that you can, but I was just kidding. So, it's
0: oh, okay.
3: Yes, and uh, Michael, we definitely are coming to a close here, but I, I did want you to leave us with any final words of advice for the new generations that are coming up. Uh, throughout time here, and of course, go ahead and plug anything you'd like as we let you descend here.
1: Well, I'll, I will say that if anything that I've chatted about this evening uh, has interested you, the easiest way to get more information about it is to poke around in my books, which are all available on Amazon. Uh, I think I've got about 16 of them at this point.
6: And if you go to Amazon.com
1: from anywhere in the world and you just look up Michael Aquino as an author, you'll find all these things listed, and you can look inside them all because they all have the look inside feature. They're all available as paperbacks or as uh, electronic um, Kindle
6: books, so you have that option.
3: Uh Uh-oh. I think we might have lost them right at the end here. Who? Mike Doctor? Yeah. Uh oh. Maybe
4: his phone died because mine was about to die too. <laughs> yeah, I I, I <laughs> Do think you wanna we, call him back right now?
3: Yeah, I'll I'll call him back right now. We we lost him like right at the final moment here.
4: Yeah. Yeah, let me let me give him another call here. He might not be able to pick up if his phone is dead.
3: No, his phone's not dead. I, I think I accidentally held can get... oh
4: no,
3: tone. Oh yeah. I, I think he didn't even realize that we, we hung up on him. Or I did on Thank accident there. Back. Yeah, yeah. I'll call him back. Yeah, I'll give him a little ring here again. Yes, I feel bad for doing that. I must have um slipped here on the mouse. He might be still talking. I know he might be talking Hello. and we don't even know. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Doctor okay. Doctor Ru- Yes, we totally um well I did. I, I totally <laughs> okay. hit the wrong button there.
1: I was I was just I was just saying that the, uh, about five years ago, I decided that I'd pretty much learned what I was going to learn, and I wanted to start sharing it, and that the books were the best way I could think of to share it. So I wrote these things, not because I expected to become a New York Times bestseller, but just to share information, particularly after I croak, and it's going to be a lot harder to reach me by seance than it would than to just read some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> So I would say go poke around there, look at this, the subjects that they're talking about, pick them up, and see what I have to say. And if it makes sense, then good, I've helped you out. So that's kind of my two cents there.
3: Very nice. That's great. As always, doctor, I had such a great time having this conversation with you. We covered plenty of ground. Uh, this was a, a great interview. Uh, Mike, any final words on for the yes. doctor? Um I would like to just say to Doctor Aquino, uh, Doctor, it's it's always an
4: honor to speak with you, sir. I I have very uh, a lot of respect for you, sir, and so it's a big deal for me to get this opportunity as as um, uh, Michael Deacon lets me come on the program and when you're on, and I, I I'm always so happy to speak with you, and you you always fill my head with knowledge, and I just want to say thank you. I hope that your health. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't get any worse and right. that everything is okay and, uh, you know, good luck with your life and, and your wife and and reach a satanist, sir.
3: We'll be praying for you, well, thank
4: Michael.
1: You, thank you so much. I appreciate all that. And if I have, if I've left people with, you know, good impressions, then my time here has been well spent. At the end of each day, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, have I really, you know, am I an asset to myself and other people or if I've just been a waste of their time and my time?
6: Well,
1: that's my advice to everybody. You know, look at yourself at the end of each day. Go in the mirror, take a look. If you like
3: what you see, do more of it. Okay? Okay. Very nice. We'll be praying for you, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Michael. All right. Do- thank you so much, Dr. Michael Aquino. Ladies and gentlemen, give him a round of applause. Yes, I could hear Ooh. it now. Yeah. All right, Michael, Woo-hoo. thank you so much, my friend. We'll talk to you again on the other side thank you all right good night my friend Good night. bye-bye good night and there he goes dr michael Great. aquino ladies and gentlemen another fantastic interview in the books that was amazing right mike
4: oh i i always have so much fun speaking well listening to him speak uh and and conversing with him the man is uh He's got a head full of knowledge, you can't doubt that, not not one bit.
3: Yeah, he really does, and wasn't this fun? This was a, a very good uh, interview this time, having you on here. We were able to cover a lot of ground. We had the callers. We I thank all the callers out there uh, for coming in here and asking some pretty good questions.
4: Yeah, it was quite an interesting night. I think uh, it almost felt like it was just a casual phone call, whereas the last time we interviewed him, which was based on the release of um, the revised version oh, yes. of the Satanic Bible. Right. You know, I, I had more of an uh, like a my my questions were uh, how would I say this uh, pointed to a certain direction. I, I had an I, I wanted answers for the book, but I never really got to get all those questions in. Um, you know, he takes a, a, a decent amount of time to define what it is he's talking about and what he's answering to any question. So. He don't get just one answer when he answers
3: something you that's know, true like one
4: word answer I like he that it really goes deep
3: yeah, I like that about him. He really takes it takes the time to really answer everything, and he Indeed. yeah, and he explains why yep that's a I, quality. I I gotta
4: admit sometimes like when I read that book uh it's it's deep it's, oh, it's, it's very a, deep.
3: it's very yeah, it's very difficult to read. I own several. I think I own two or three, three of his books, and they all, all of them, are very difficult to decipher. You definitely have to go back and read them a couple right. times over to really fully grasp what he's explained right. to you in his books. And um, going back to his book, uh, Mind Star, which is just a fantastic book. If you haven't read it yet, Mike, it it really I goes, haven't. yeah, it goes pretty deep. And so does so does something like the Diabolicon. Is also another great piece of work, but that's a whole other
4: different thing. But I can only tell you when I asked him that question about if he had ever considered writing a version of a Satanic Bible that would be like a story. Yeah, I I would because when when he when he wrote the Diabolicon in the second edition of uh, the Satanic Bible by him, um, he really. It, he expresses it in such a manner that you're like "You're reading this story, and it's like I can picture the images in my head of god and 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 Lucifer and the angels and and everybody's talking and they're having a conversation. i just i said, oh my god this is the this is what I want <laughs> you know I want a, a satanic Bible that's got stories in it, you know, <laughs> just like the uh the old Christian Bible
3: oh yes, no doubt, and Mike, we definitely have to uh, wrap up here. I could definitely okay. talk to you for another hour here, no problem. But we, likewise, yeah, we will be hitting that mark pretty soon here. But okay, well, we'll definitely have to do this again, Mike. I'll bring you on here, and we'll we'll knock out a few guests here. Okay, if
4: I can make just one announcement, sure, um, go ahead.
3: I'm going to I'm going to have a new website that's coming
4: up, in addition to my uh, MikeHideous.com um, website. I have one that's coming out with my artwork and photography. Uh, It's called horribleartwork.com. Horribleartwork.com. And it should probably go live in about, what's what's today, Thursday? I'm going to say by next week, it should be fully up. Um, But right now, um, it's still in the works, and uh, it's going to have images of uh, my artwork, my prints of uh, paintings, drawings, photography, And then there's also going to be some things like um, uh, bed sheets and pillowcases and throw towels and kind of cool stuff like that with my artwork. on. Oh, I like that. Horribleartwork.com. Very cool.
3: For those that don't know, Mike is actually a very skilled artist as well as a musician. Uh, I love a lot of the paintings you have shown me uh, via cell phone there. Lots of good artwork, (laughs) man. I love that stuff.
4: Michael, thank you so much for having me. Uh, always a pleasure, and I'm
3: always honored to be on your show. Thank you, sir. No problem. We'll talk again very soon, my friend. Okay, buddy. Right. Take care of yourself. Good night, and mahalo. <laughs> and there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Remember, you can catch the podcast version of this program on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, CastBox. There's a few more out there. You can all You can find the program on all popular platforms. And uh, thank you over to the Fringe FM. I return Saturday, regular time at 7 p.m. for you West Coasters. That's 9 p.m. Eastern time for you out there. I'd also like to thank you for your patience last week. I dropped the ball. The show was riddled with issues with Dr. E. Michael Jones. I got extremely bothered by it. Normally, I don't exactly get that way. But this time, I was seriously irritated. I guess I do pride myself in putting out a great-sounding product. I might even delete that episode from YouTube. But don't worry. Dr. Michael Jones has it up on his channel, chopped up, Lorena Bobbitt style. Now, now we can go on a, on a low note there. Thanks for being here, boys and girls. I'm Michael Deacon, and with that said... The world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. <laughs> I'm glad you are. You, you, you put together innovation, and it's fun, and I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And-
5: yeah, I'm sure we will, Michael. End
3: of
4: Days the freedom of speech is being taken away.
6: What you they capture somewhere after they die? I don't know. I, do you believe in heaven? I never did. That's all I don't know why I
3: You'll get good at including in was it yes. 1997, Michael, Anil?